Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, welcome on to the New York Knicks season outlook. Jared Dubin, I'd love to thank you for being our rock over these last seven years on this program. We've done three-man pods. We've done two-man pods. But it would be remiss of us not to include this time for the first time on the New York Knicks, the man with whom you spent two hours on the phone ranking Knicks Donovan Mitchell trade pieces, Fred Katz. Fred, how are you? It it was a magical two hours. It was a wonderful two hour hours <laughs> that that proved fraught in the end, but still <laughs> not a two hours I would never give back. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And, uh, since you guys did that, I really, this is the season outlook, but I don't think either of you really spoken publicly yet, at least from an opinion standpoint, on what you make of the fact that Donovan Mitchell is not a Nick. He went to the Cleveland Cavaliers and said the Knicks apparently were not willing to pony up enough to get him. Jared, start with you first. What do you think of that? Um, I was of the mind that while it would be a good thing to get Donovan Mitchell on the team. The Knicks, to get him, were going to have to give up too much to be able to make the next deal that would actually get them into contention. And that's something that Fred wrote about, an opinion that I agreed with, essentially. Like, it would be great to get a player as good as Donovan Mitchell, but they were basically going to have to do the Carmelo trade all over again, where they gave up essentially all of their assets to get a player who by himself probably wasn't enough to lift you to contention on his own and then not be able to build a team good enough around him in the intervening years. And that's kind of what we saw happen 10, 11 years ago. Granted, Carmelo was the second guy in the door after Amari Sotomayor, but this time it would have been, you know, Donovan Mitchell as the first guy in the door, Um, you know, unless you consider Julius Randle the first guy in the door, which, you know, despite what happened two years ago is, uh, is probably not the case so, you know, I- I'm not of the mind that it's a disaster that they didn't land Donovan Mitchell. Like, I don't think it's great that they set out to get someone and then didn't get him. Like, they pretty clearly wanted to have him on the team this season, and I don't think they executed their plan. But I also think that if they had gotten him, the cost, from my perspective, probably would have been too high. So I'm sort of of two minds about it. Yeah, Fred, uh, you... In your piece that Jared alluded to, that was a great piece. I have referenced it many, many times when discussing this situation, both before and after the trade. And I I thought that was a great way to frame it personally. But now that it, in fact, hasn't happened, now I'm sure you've had a chance to catch up on just what were the packages that were offered? You know, what, what was Utah really looking for? What would it have actually taken maybe to get him? 
it, how would you feel similarly to Jared on it or, or do you have a, a different opinion? Yeah. So I, I look at it in kind of a, I think there's a micro way to look at it. And I think there's a macro way to look at it. The micro way to look at it is what Jared just did, right? He, he looked at the Knicks not trading for Donovan Mitchell and said, okay, what could they have done to get Donovan Mitchell? Okay. Well, what they would have had to give up was too much. It, it's much different to trade. You look at like the superstar trades since Carmelo and basically all of not even the superstar trades, the all-star trades are for a second or third guy in the door, right? It's giving up a bunch of pieces for AD when you already have LeBron. It's giving up a bunch of draft picks for Drew Holiday when you already have Giannis and Chris Middleton. It's it's not necessarily giving up a bunch of draft picks and a bunch of pieces for the first guy and then kind of being barren when you're trying to trade for that second one in, especially when that first guy is a really, really good player. But it's not like just because you have Donovan Mitchell, you're all of a sudden a 50 win team. So I agree with everything Jared said. And I think if you're someone who's listening, who has read most of my coverage of the Donovan Mitchell stuff leading up to this. And I've been on vacation since the beginning of time, which is why I have not commented all on the, the Mitchell stuff until now. Uh, but if you've read that stuff, you could probably guess that I, I agreed with everything that Jared said in the micro. My macro analysis is, I think, more negative towards the Knicks, whereas I think they were correct not to put together this trade for Donovan Mitchell. If you trade RJ Barrett and three first round picks and the rest of the stuff you need to make the trade work or whatever it is like that is too much. It's just too much. You don't have enough left over to trade for somebody else big. And you honestly probably might not even be that good to begin with if that's what you're giving up because RJ's development is a huge part of your future. I think if you look at it in the macro, just the bigger sense of it, it's okay. The Knicks plan all along has been, we are going to wait for a star to become available, not on the free agent market because they have not set themselves up with cap room, right? They've so given out contracts and compiled draft picks with the, not the express purpose, but with the the clear and intended purpose to trade for the next star who becomes available on the market. And with the way that inflation in the market has progressed to where it takes two plus unprotected picks just to get uh, DeJounte Murray, you have to ask yourself, well, then when are they going to pull the trigger on this plan? Because you're not getting a star for one unprotected picks and a, a Bucks protected pick and a Dallas protected pick and a Detroit protected pick or a Washington protected pick, which are the four protected picks the Knicks have from other teams. You're not getting a star and having a top nine protected pick push that over the edge. So my question is, okay, if not Donovan Mitchell, then what is next? Because this is the guy who you were tied to on an emotional and a relationship level because he was with Leon Rose, who runs the Knicks and used to run the basketball division of CAA, which is Donovan Mitchell's agency. You know, Carl Anthony Towns, another CAA guy, is not becoming available now after extending. Devin Booker, same thing. Extension, CAA, but he's not becoming available. Yeah. Well, uh, I just and I don't know they where they go next. Someone, obviously, they couldn't get someone from like a different age. That would be Well, no, that that that... Let's be real. <laughs> Let's be real. I'm just saying this. This was clearly the plan. This was the plan is very clearly to trade for a star. And I'm not saying just pounce on the first one. I'm just saying if the plan is to trade for a star and then there's inflation in the market and that inflation sets it. So it's you're you're priced out of that trade. 
like it's it's dangerous to trade for that first star as Jared just laid out because you often have nothing left and there's a cap on how many draft picks you can trade. You can only trade four unprotected picks of your own at one time and that is it. And at, at most and I just I I don't know where they go next. I I'm I'm just skeptical what that route is now to be able to trade for a first star and bring in a second. I just, it's just difficult to see how that happens. And I, I, I'm not saying the plan won't work. I'm just saying there's, there, there is, they are now farther away from accomplishing that plan than I, than I kind of thought they were at any point during this process. So three, three things I, I want to add to that, that I, I don't think I've heard that much of elsewhere. Uh, the first that you said, Jared is the micro and you're, and you're the macro. I still think Jared is, is the macro and you're like, the meta macro or, or something because the micro <laughs> would have fair. been hey like one more first round pick who cares right like you get donovan mitchell is that first round pick is only a 50 percent chance even being a rotation player you're gonna be good if you get mitchell anyway who cares just throw that last pick in there just fucking do it right uh you know but i i think despite that uh you know i probably do come down a little bit more on on Jared's side as of now, although I do, you know, I, I share your idea of like, where were they going? But I also was kind of like, ah, where were they going with Donovan Mitchell and giving up all these assets anyway? Uh, and so, so that gets to one of the, the points I'm going to, but at least I would say at least the Knicks showed a little bit more, I would say organizational process and fortitude in theory to not just, you know, Hey, at least James Dolan didn't parachute in and demand that they, throw in another three assets to get this guy, right? Like this is at least a more rational era from that standpoint. Like the Knicks had a process in theory. They had an amount that they're willing to pay and ultimately didn't pay it. Now you can also say in the macro, hey, they negotiated a little bit too hard. They thought the Jazz were going to come back to them after the Barrett signing. They had this gambit of like, oh, we'll just, uh, hey, if you when you don't do the trade now, we're going to sign Barrett to the extension, like artificial deadline. And then, you know, really the jazz, it seems like never went back to them. Um, so you could say that they kind of miscalculated there, but they did at least have a process, which is not something that they've had in the past. So that, that's point one. Um, and feel free you guys to break in on, on any of these at any point. Uh, point two that I would say is another thing that really kind of gets lost in this a little bit is like, how good is Donovan, right? It's like all of a sudden he's, oh man, like, you know, CAA, we got to get this guy. Like he's an all-star, uh, but Oh, wait a minute. Like if we get him or we haven't really actually changed our destiny as a franchise at all. Uh, you know, he's like maybe a number two. He's got a lot of issues with his defense that we've seen. He's a small guard. He really probably should play point guard. And they just gave a $27 million a year contract to someone who's also a small guard who plays point guard. But I talked about this with Chris Fedor on the Cleveland show. Like what if he comes in and he's the, the, the main force on the number one offense in the NBA the last two years like what if he comes in and cleveland's top five offense because of this guy right like so i think there's just it seems like hey donovan mitchell is this massive guy we're focused on mca all this shit and then it's like oh yeah uh, cleveland's over under went up by like three and a half when they got it or something right so uh i think that's really interesting and then finally uh the last thing i'd say is just i don't think that this mitchell thing is the problem with the knicks overall plan it's really more a symptom of how it all went wrong two years ago Hiring Tom Thibodeau, the, hey, let's improve you absolutely as much as possible in this year. And then Julius Randle, as Jared alluded to, having this great season in 2021, and they they make the playoffs, and then, you know, they re-sign all these guys, and now you're just fucking stuck in the middle again, right? I mean, like, I think this regime is actually 
you know, has a, some pretty good ability and they, they've done some great stuff in the margins with draft picks. They've made good draft picks, but the highest pick they've had is number eight. And they, you know, we'll see, see what end, that guy ends up being, but they're not going to have a, a pick higher than that. Most likely. Nate, really Nate I think the, the Knicks are going to make sure that we won't see what that guy ends up being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, well. a couple things, uh, I got a yeah. couple things to add here as well. So please, I think that, um, Cleveland is much better positioned than the Knicks are to make the two small guards thing work defensively because they have Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. So I think that that contributes to their being willing to put in that extra first yeah. pick, you know, especially because, you know, Darius Garland is, is better than, you know, whatever the Knicks have on their roster as well. And, you know, so is Evan Mobley, maybe so is Jared Allen. Um, second thing is I think they dramatically overestimated the value of other teams protected first round picks in trades. They might have been better off like taking somebody at number 11 this year and putting that guy in the trade, as opposed to having these protected yeah. first round picks that Utah apparently did not value like at all. And it doesn't seem that they're, they have that much value on the market, especially that Milwaukee top five protected first, which was, you know, swung in the, the, the Kemba salary dump. Um, the third thing is like you alluded to with Tibbs, you know, they did get better and quickly and top and have been, you know, pretty impressive in the time they've gotten on the court. But they also haven't gotten enough time on the court to be considerably valuable in trades. Like, I think that's mm. become pretty clear as well. Um, and then I did have one more thing to say, but I honestly forgot what it was in uh, in the midst of those three things. Well, well I, I had plenty of time to, like, to, you know, write a couple of bullet points for my, my soliloquy there. But, um, yeah, Fred, I mean, I think we probably need to wrap this up and talk about this this year's team, you know, in the next five, ten minutes or so here. But, uh you know, in the end, I mean, I guess, you know, would you have thrown in more to get this done if you were the... No, I mean, not not significantly more. Like I said, I, no. I don't think they operated wrong in terms of these negotiations. Like giving up, you know, a, you referenced that I wrote, like the maximum that I would give up in a deal for Donovan Mitchell before that deal with Cleveland went is is the most I could give up that still leaves enough to be able to trade for a star specifically in 2024. Uh, which is when they would be able to open up an extra draft pick. Uh, and I would have tried to not trade 29 and 27 and 29. And then you compare 27, 29 and, and, and 31 together and, and try to trade for a star again there. And I didn't, I don't think based on the haul that Cleveland sent back, I don't think it's possible for the Knicks to be able to top that while still having stuff left for 2024. So I am not criticizing them for not making that deal. I don't think they were in a position to make that deal. And and Jared makes a great point about them. Cleveland being in a position to to have two small guards. It's absolutely true. They're going to have the best rim protection in the Eastern conference between those two guys with Mobley and Allen. Uh, but, but I also think Cleveland was in the position to where like they've got Garland in the door. They've got Mobley in the door. Like Mobley's going to be a stud. Garland's already a stud, you know, yeah. like they, Allen is, is an ex, has really become an excellent center and they, they've got that infrastructure already that they're now adding Donovan Mitchell to with, right with the Knicks. That's, that's just not necessarily the case. Cleveland's younger and they're farther along and their core is, which is the hard part. Their core is good to go. Uh, and so I, I, I think it was a good deal for Cleveland. I like it. And I just, I'm fine with the Knicks not doing it. I'm just wondering, like, when this falls through, you just wish you had a clearer answer to the question, okay, what's next? What is the next oh, step? Where do you go from here? My, uh, and I don't really know. That reminds me of what my last point was, which is that, um, you know, when you think about who's next, it doesn't seem obvious right now. But I also don't think at this time last year that we thought 
you know, all three of Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, and DeJounte Murray would get traded this offseason. You know, somebody is going to become available that's not obvious right now. And I think, yeah, yeah for sure. Jer- Jared, to be clear, what's next is not equivalent to who's next. Someone's going to be available. We didn't think Kevin Durant was going to be, you know, air quotes available either. Like, I'm not saying who's next. There's someone who's going to be available. But I'm just saying, if someone becomes available and that player is as good or better than Donovan Mitchell, then chances are that player is going to cost at least what Donovan Mitchell costs. And now the Knicks are in the same situation where you're giving up, having to give up three unprotected firsts and more stuff for a first star on the door. And we're having the exact conversation that we're having now. So that player has to be like a Kevin Durant level player or damn close to a Kevin Durant level player for all of us on this podcast to be sitting here being like, that is worth the Knicks giving up everything for, even if it's the first guy in. So I just wonder what the plan that they're doing with the way that they are directing their assets to try to trade for that first star in the door, as opposed to sign or draft that guy, because they're not maximizing their chances at drafting them by tanking and 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 they don't have the cap room to sign them because they gave out all of this money. I just wonder what is actually next. What happens when that next guy becomes available and you're stuck in the exact same position that you just passed on with Donovan Mitchell? Last thing on this uh, that I'll add it, and you guys brought up Cleveland, this is just to uh, exacerbate, I guess I should say, one of, one of my points. Cleveland in the 2021 draft had the number three overall pick and they took Evan Mobley. The top eight of that draft other than Jalen Suggs all those guys are very very exciting prospects the Knicks great job they had number 21 initially uh ended up trading down in in another one of these great arbitrage trades they get Quentin Grimes a guy who may by some accounts even could have been a deal breaker in this Mitchell deal but you know Quentin Grimes is not changing your destiny as a franchise Evan Mobley is and so again that's just it's a perfect example to remember of like okay we got to get better we got to get better this this year but okay, yeah, now uh, where are you going? And I guess that's a, a great segue into what this team is going to be this year. And yeah, it's going to be pretty similar to last year, except they added Jalen Brunson, Fred. So last year's team plus Jalen Brunson minus, you know, some of the guys they salary dumped. Noel didn't play much and Burks, who was solid, but, you know, a bench guard. What is that team? Just generally, you think? <laughs> I think they're better than they were last year. Uh, I... Look, I think there is a good argument to be made that over the last two years, the Knicks have had the worst point guard play of any team that's actively trying to win, you know, and between Alfred Payton starting for the whole year a couple of years ago and then this past season, uh, you know, Kemba Walker just looking like a shell of himself when he was out there and Alec Burks manning point guard you know burks is a, is a really solid rotation player but he's not a point guard i i think there's a good argument to be made that that was the case and jalen brunson is a legitimately good player hyper efficient really smart uh, has all those crafty moves inside the three-point line he is he plays really good team basketball he's good on the ball he can, he's got a jump shot he's he's really good off the ball he's great in those catch and goes with luca like that is a good player and because he's a good player, it's an absolutely ginormous upgrade on what they already had. So I think they addressed their weak spot, which was an unbelievably weak spot, and they they made it good. Like he's a good player, and if Derrick Rose is going to play anywhere near fifty games, he's a great backup point guard. So so they they could be okay in a department that they were 
disastrous in last year. And I think that will help them a lot. But the East is so strong and the Cavs got better. And I just can't see Brooklyn being worse. Uh, and, and you look at some of these other teams, I'm like, I don't really know what that gets you. Like, I think it gets them into the play in tournament because I think Charlotte's going to be worse. But I don't know how high that makes you climb from from 11, like to get you to nine, eight, maybe. Uh, but I don't really see it being that much higher than that. Yeah, I think it's possible that they are a better team, but wind up with a somewhat similar record or at least performance level. Like they underperformed their point differential by four wins last year. They had the point differential of a 500 team. And I feel like that's like around where they're going to be again this year, because even though I think it's probably a better team, I think it's a much tougher conference and tougher division too than it was last year. And I don't know how you make up for that barring somebody taking a significant step forward. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And now Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car 
not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing, like their premium Slub Crew tee, the No BS High Rise Pant, the Slim Roughneck Pant featured in Giant Magazine, Issue 2. Every American Giant piece is made in America and designed to last no exceptions, and it provides year-round comfort. So find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use that finisher code CAPSPACE at checkout. Please remember, we talk about CAPSPACE all the time here on the program. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know you came from us. So... Fred, you mentioned all, all the things that Jalen Brunson did, and, and I thought that Dallas losing him was a massive problem. He, he was just so important for their style of play, just so difficult to stop when they went to five out. Even without Luka Doncic, uh, it was able to attack smaller guards, use it, his that start and stop, great body, great touch, craftiness in the lane. My question that I have, though, as I look at this Knicks roster and the way that Tom Thibodeau wants to play is, how good can he be on this Knicks team? You know, that's that was the question I had with the signing. I mean, all the all CAA and Rick Brunson and Leon Rose and, and yes, upgrading at point guard, all that stuff. Like, he is going to make them better. But I wonder about whether it's fair, particularly because of the way that Brunson played in Dallas and just watching him, the way he was successful and how he used the space on the floor that that team and that offense provided. I wonder if he can play that same way with. Oh, I do too. I, I mean, look, I think there's no question. I don't think he has to become a three point reliant player because that's just not who he is. And if he does that, then you're just changing who he is and his identity. But he's got to take more threes. Uh, you know, when he was with Dallas, he was playing with a lot of four out, five out at offenses, right? Like he's playing with Maxi Kleba, his center in the corner. And this is going to be a giant change. Because I, I've actually hit up people with with teams asking if there's a way they can find this out. And they all say either, no, I can't find it out, or no, I'm not spending the time looking this up for you. But I am convinced that Mitchell Robinson spends more time with at least one foot in the paint on offense than any other player in the NBA. Uh, because not just because he... Not just because he takes all of his shots at the rim, but also because the way the Knicks weaponize him on offense is really as an offensive rebounder. So they have him camp in the lane. And I think his natural in inclination is to drift into the lane as well. And we saw time and time again last year, Julius Randle settle for jump shots because Mitchell Robinson was there. And I, I've spoken to Julius about it. Like I've asked him about it. And he says it's a conscious decision. The Knicks have all these rim diving centers and Hart Hartenstein plays a totally different style of play, but, uh, you know, is still an inside the three point arc kind of guy. Uh, and it's not just that. I mean, RJ Barrett, even if RJ Barrett has saved his jump shot and he's a 40% three point shooter, that's just not where he's best. Spacing isn't just about shooting ability. It's about where you can put guys for them to be their best, right? Yeah. It's about where the geography are you actually of it. standing on the floor? It's kind of exactly. And RJ wants like, to be inside the three point line. You know, Randall does. Robinson is. Sorry, Jared. Go ahead. How much do defenses feel like you're an actual threat that they need to pay attention to from where you're standing on the floor? Like, 
even if RJ gets back to, you know, 38, 40% three point shooting, are they more threatened by that than whatever else the Knicks are going to do in the paint that they're going to hug up to him and leave space for Brunson and Randall to get into the lane? Like that matters more than the percentage that he shoots. Yeah. So I, I think maybe the next place to start is just, uh, I mean, this is, as you go up and down the roster, like a pretty deep team. Um, what is this rotation going to look like? Who's who's going to start for these guys? I think Grimes has to start. Like Nate, Nate, you alluded to it. Like what if if you're not going to if you're not going to trade Grimes, just make him take him off the table and trade conversations. Which, by the way, the Knicks kind of got clowned for that, and I and I, I kind of get that. I don't know if it was as much you can't have Quentin Grimes no matter what, but I get it. I see it with Grimes. I think Grimes is going to be, he has a chance to be really good, I think. Uh, and he's the exact kind of player that the Knicks need in that he doesn't need the ball. If he has the ball, he can actually dribble. He can attack closeouts. He's a good shooter. And he is really good, especially defending small guards. But he's really good defending on the perimeter already. Uh, so I, I think Grimes has to replace Fournier. And then I think the rest is you're just going chalk. You're going you're going Brunson at the one and RJ at the three and Randall at the four and and Mitch at the five. And all that being said, my prediction is that there is going to be a a movement in the in in sections of the fan base after not too long that Hartenstein has got to start because I think I think he his dynamics are going to make more sense inside that first unit and he still protects the rim quite well. the The advanced rim protection data on him was was excellent last year. I think. Uh, Guy shot 47% on layups and dunks when he was the closest defender. Uh, so he, I think he might have a chance to get in there at some point. And we've seen Tom Thibodeau sit Mitchell Robinson at times. It happened with Nerlens Noel for, for legitimate stretches. But off the bat, especially after resigning on that contract, I think Mitchell Robinson is for sure going to be the starter. We might not have to wait that long for Hartenstein to start because Mitch tends to get hurt fairly often. Um, maybe not miss, you know, a significant chunk of the season like he did a couple of years ago, but definitely misses games or weeks or whatever here and there. So I think Hardenstein will, will certainly get some time with the starters. The question when that happens for me is like, well, does Tibbs then take that opportunity to actually give Toppin more minutes or does Jericho Sims then play after? And I think we all know that the answer is almost certainly going to be the latter. And, you know, the rotation questions are like they just went through this whole thing where, you know, they didn't want to give up all of their young guys and all of their picks in the Donovan Mitchell trade. But, like, are these guys actually going to play? You know, a, a lot of the reason that quickly and Toppin and even Grimes weren't valued as highly as the Knicks seem to think they should be in trades is because, you know, they're they're on this team that's trying to win. They can't even play half the game, you know. So are they actually going to play? I, you know, watch the – I'm not going to call it a press conference because it was just an interview with the team-sponsored uh, cable station. But – Leon Rose was talking about how, you know, there's no mandate or edict or whatever for Tibbs to play the young guys. He's in charge of the rotation and he's going to play who he thinks can win. Um, you know, I, I would say that the young guys probably are going to help them win more than the old guys based on what we've seen over the last couple seasons. But, you know, the idea of Tibbs actually playing like quickly and topping more than half the game, I think does not really pass the smell test to me. Grimes, maybe if he goes into the starting lineup over Fournier, but I mean, even that I'm somewhat skeptical of, not necessarily being a starter, but him being like a consistent, you know, 28, 30 minute a game guy. Like, I'll believe it when I see it, that he's going to play the younger guys over the veterans. Tibbs loves Grimes for what it's worth. I, I know Tibbs he loves Grimes. He says he loves Grimes. He says he loves quickly. He says he loves Toppin. Like, 
Uh, no, I know what tonight. I know what he says, but but I think Tib. Uh, there's a reason I said Tibbs loves Grimes and not Tibbs loves everybody else. Like I think Tibbs loves mm-hmm. Grimes specifically. Like Tibbs, Tibbs behind the scenes was pushing real hard for them to draft Grimes. And I don't know how you could be all in on Grimes before the draft, then watch his rookie year and then be less in on him. Like he was, he was impressive. And then he was great in summer league when they handed him the ball and basically let him run the offense. Uh, I, I, I think Tibbs, I think Tibbs behind the scenes is a, I think he's big on Grimes. Grimes is a very Tibbs player. You can, he, he's very low maintenance and he, he doesn't care about having the ball and he, fights really, really hard defensively, plays hard. You know, you talk to people around the team and they talk about what a hard worker he is and just how dedicated he is to like all the the gritty stuff. He like evokes every single typical Tibbs trait I think you can have. So I think Tibbs, I think Tibbs really likes Grimes. I I I look, I, I'm gonna be really surprised. I know there have been other people who say, oh, they Tibbs really wants to play top and he was, you know, that's that's gonna happen. I just don't see how it's going to happen with the roster, assuming everybody is healthy as is. Uh Grimes, there is there is there is daylight for Grimes. There is an avenue for him to get 26 to 30 minutes and be a regular starter at the two. So I, I think I think that's a, a true possibility, like a like a real possibility. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Evan Fournier is the competition. He really disappointed a year ago. You know, he was the big free agent signing, and he did set the Knicks record for most threes in a season a year ago, and shooting is something that they desperately need. So, you know, it wouldn't even shock me to see those two guys playing together some. But, yeah, I think it, it, it would make sense to start Grimes, given where they are, particularly with, again, not really having, I don't think, a realistic pathway to, you know, having a crazy successful season. Though we felt that about them two years ago as well. Um, yeah, any other... Can I, can I add yeah, one thing? Ahead, can I add yeah, one please? thing? Yeah. I, I think also, like, if you take independent of ability, whether you think Grimes is better or Fournier is better, I think if you evaluate just on style, Grimes makes so much more sense with the starting unit. Just because the type of player that he is, I'm a big believer in if you have a guy who is your best offensive, your best defensive player, if he is good enough to play with the starters offensively, he should start because you're muting his defensive value. If you have him guarding bench guys, you you want him guarding the best players. That's why you have that best defense, best defender on the perimeter. And Grimes is going to be their best perimeter defender. I don't know why you wouldn't want to mute him by by having him guard bench players as opposed to the Trey Youngs of the world, which is which he's really good on. So so I think that's another thing to consider with Grimes as well, just his his overall skill set beyond just the ability conversation. Let's talk about Julius Randle now. To me, they've built a team that yeah, you know, they're still not that high on talent, right? Like I mean the the best player on this team is probably Jalen Brunson, but it's a deep team. Uh and and they even have some guys in bench roles that everyone feels like should get more time, etc. Um, but to me, Julius Randle is, you know, the, in theory was going to be the best player on this team two years ago, came out of nowhere, had this amazing shooting season, 42% from three, hitting all these really difficult step backs and mid-range shots. Then he had a terrible playoffs and, and followed that up with a bad, I thought, you know, first maybe three months of the season. And Freddie, you probably remember better than me, but I thought he actually did come on uh, the last as they made their uh, push for the number 11 overall pick in the draft uh, late in the season. But what is going to happen with Julius Randle this year? Like, how, how good is he? Can he bounce back at all? Maybe not to an all-star level, but to a level where it actually, like, 
makes sense to have him be the four on this team and he's not just like kind of fucking up the whole style of the team? What do you think, Jerry? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Jerry, go ahead. I would say I think he can and should be better than last year. But also when we did this podcast last season, we were talking about, you know, like even if he regresses, he's unlikely to be, you know, as bad as he was the year before. And like if he can just be 75, 80% of what he was in 2020, 2021, then, you know, that contract will look pretty good. And so even if he regresses a little bit, it's going to be fine. Well, well, uh, uh, Jared, the third, 30% 30% from three is 75% of 40% from three. <laughs> so uh, well, that's, that's, that's what he was but, last year. I mean, for, yeah, for a lot of the last season, he was like worse than he was, um, I guess it's now three years ago, you know? Yeah. And uh, so it's like, I, I feel like he should be better and he's shown the ability to be a lot better. But, you know, now this is a guy who, you know, I, I think considers himself the best player on the team and the number one option. And, like, he, he's not even the number one lefty on the team right now. He might not even be the number two option as among lefties on the team. And it, it seemed like last year there was things that, you know, mentally he wasn't right throughout the season. I don't know the specifics of what was going on there. But, you know, how he handles, like, being further down in the pecking order than he expects to be or thinks he should be, I think is going to play a significant role in what he looks like this year. I, I was surprised – by how the Knicks operated in terms of free agency this offseason, to be honest, just because I don't know how you could watch Julius. Look, I, I'm not going to take the onus off of Julius Randall's down season last year. I'm not taking the onus off of him. Most of it was on him. The The defense totally falling off. That was on him. Yeah. The 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 uh, just the the constant just like late game brush screen, dump it off to Julius at 18 feet jab step 18 times, shoot a step back. That was partially on the offense they were running and also partially on his decision-making, um, you know, that the offense was just going to run through him and that was how they were going to do it when he's just not that player. Um, you know, all that was on him. All that being said, I just didn't understand how you could watch the season that Julius Randall had last year and think, okay, if we have a similar type of roster makeup, Julius is still going to bounce back. And I think he'll be better than he was last year because last year, like he didn't people talk about him last year as like regressing from his all NBA season. He didn't regress because he didn't go back to what he was. He was he was worse than what he was last year. And I think part of it is that he's a specific kind of player. You can't just plug and play him. And the Knicks did not have a roster around him that made sense for his abilities. You know, we talked about the spacing. You know, I I I I Last year, Julius Randle, a little bit less than 40% of his shots came at the rim when he didn't play next to a rim diving center. That's a really good number. When you're taking 40% of your shots at the rim, that's really good. When he did play next to a rim diving center, which was the vast majority of the time, that number dropped to like 22%, almost cut in half. And that was a conscious decision on his part because the spacing just wasn't there. And he settled for jumpers. And he was, other than Jalen Suggs, He was the worst high volume jump shooter from mid range and from three in the NBA last season. And that was a huge problem with their offense. When the majority of your offense is coming from two guys in Randall and Barrett who have 51% true shooting percentages, it puts a very, very, very low cap on how good your offense can be when those two guys are in your lineup at the same time. And I just don't necessarily get the Knicks going to 
all of these non-shooters who are going to be in their rotation and not just non-shooters, but guys who want to be inside the three-point line and want to be in the paint. I, I think it's going to cap how good Randall can be. I think he'll be better, but I just don't see a world where he is taking a giant number of shots he did at the rim. And to be clear, when he had the best season of his career, he took fewer shots at the rim than ever. But the thing was, he was hitting 40 plus percent of his threes and he was hitting everything from mid-range. He shot like 45 from mid-range. And I guess if you believe that that wasn't an outlier, then you can convince yourself that you can build a roster like that and Randall can be massively successful again. But I, I you can't convince me that that wasn't an outlier because it's the only time it's happened in a in a seven, eight year career. So I, I just I don't see a way where you can get everything that you need out of Julius Randall with the roster being like it is. I think there's just you're not going to get the best version of Randall if you have a roster like this. Yeah, and I, I think that, as Jamie would, would say, getting the best version of Julius Randle, it's probably not worth it. You know, Zion Williamson, Giannis Antetokounmpo, fours who are scorers but don't shoot the ball that well from the outside, that's worth, like, building your whole team around. Uh, and I don't think that Julius Randle, even after that great year, was that. So if he can't make shots, then he's just really killing your style, right? I mean, you have these two guys, Brunson and... Barrett who are left-handed and both love to get to the rim as well and now you have not only one but I mean a lot of teams have a non-shooting center but now you have two non-shooters in the front court and you also have a guy another guy when we talk about where guys are going to stand Julius Randle is going to want to be in the action and then if he's in the action he's going to go they're going to switch and then they're going to throw the ball to him at the elbow I mean he's you're not going to like not throw it to him at the elbow when he's just standing in the path of everything that you're trying to do there. Uh, so, and then because there's no space after that, then he's going to shoot a, a difficult step back, even though he has the size advantage. And so I, I, I went through this with Hollinger a few weeks ago. I, I think it was on a Spotify live. We got asked about Randall and I went through the roster of every team in the NBA. And I was like, how many teams would just like, if you, did, you could just take Julius Randall, irrespective of salary, if you just take him on your team and make him your starting four, how many teams would want to do that? And that number, subjectively to me, was very low because of the stylistic issues that he has in a position where you generally need shooting. And so I, as I look at this roster, I'm like, hey, you know what? Like Barrett, like he's got a chance to evolve. He, he was attacking the rim last year towards the end, looked better. And then, you know, Jalen Brunson, you bring in him as well. It's like if you just had, you know, a Jay Crowder type at the four is just going to stand at the arc and shoot three four percent from three on a reasonable volume like this roster would actually make some sense but because of julius randall it does not i think some of that has to go on like they're building the type of roster that the coach wants there's not going to be a situation where they're not going to have you know a rim protecting rim diving center there's not going to be a situation where they're going to go small at the four there's not going to be a situation where they're not going to run a million pick and rolls with rush grains to get Julius Randle in isolation at the elbow. That is just not going to happen based on who is coaching the team. Like that is why they went out and got, you know, more guys that are going to be in and around the paint all the time, because that is the roster that the coach wants. So it's not going to put Randall in position to succeed. I think we've talked about how it's not necessarily the best way to put Brunson in position to succeed because he does like to be in the paint all the time. And he would rather drive than shoot. Like he, has to take more pull-up threes this year than ever before. Otherwise, the offense is just like not going to work because you got to figure out some way to stretch the defense. I, I would say that at least with Brunson and Barrett, like 
RJ typically sets up on the right side of the floor so he can attack closeouts going to his left. So when Brunson goes left and can then swing it back across to him, that's going to work pretty well. But Randall like sets up at that left elbow, and it's, it's going to be very difficult for him and Brunson to play together in a way that makes sense. And, um, you know, I, I agree that it would make much more sense to have like a Jay Crowder type at the four or to like go with like Fournier, Grimes, and Barrett as your, you know, three wings and try to play that way. But I, I can't see that really ever happening under this coaching staff. So Fred, can I, can yeah, I take good. exception to, to one quick thing? I don't think Tibbs needs a rim diving, rim protecting center. I think he just needs a rim protecting center. And most rim protecting centers just happen to be rim divers. That's why I always thought they were the perfect Miles Turner team. Because Miles yeah. Turner shoots threes well enough to where you have to guard him and he's going to protect the rim. I think Tibbs is fine with having it playing a center unconventionally. I mean, look, like he was the coach of Joakim Noah during the season that Noah finished fourth in MVP voting. Like he was he was running an offense through his center. It's so one thing I'm I'm curious about is is he going to bust out some of the Noah playbook for Hartenstein or Hartenstein? I always do that uh, because because he's such a good passer and, and can make a lot of those similar passes to Noah could. Like, are we going to see some 2014 Noah stuff from from Hartenstein? Uh, but Tibbs will evolve in his really, really specific ways. He's just rigid on certain things. And he his ethos is rim protection. He believes defense is built from the paint out and he needs an individual to protect the paint. But if that individual happens to be able to shoot threes, I don't think he's going to stop him from shooting threes. Yeah. It's just that all of the guys who protect the rim, who the Knicks continue to get, are Nerlens Noel and and Taj Gibson, who by the way shot like 70% on corner threes over the last 3 months ah. of the season last year. It was the most exciting Knicks storyline in 25 years. Uh it was uh but like he will he will let a guy go on the perimeter if he protects the rim. You just need to acquire that guy. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns you can customize. Things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 
21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Fred, Fred before we move on, I, I do have to say, we talked about all these lefties that they have, especially because you're a baseball guy and where handedness kind of matters more. I do want to see the article at the end of the season of, do the Knicks have the highest percentage of their shots taken by left-handed players of any team in NBA history towards the end of the, the, end of the year? Uh, that's uh, that's that's some some free article ideas for you there. Um, now that that is a story. You can call it Southpaw Shot Selection. It'll be perfect. Uh, what are some of the big? Hartenstein's a lefty too, by the way. Who is? Oh, oh, Hartenstein's a lefty too. Hartenstein. Oh man. Uh, so what are some of the big themes for this year? I mean, we talked about the Mitchell things. So we may not have time to get through like all of the nitty gritty minutia that I usually do on this show, but. Uh, what are some of the big themes for this year that you guys think are going to kind of determine how this season goes? So I think number one, the number one most important thing, when you beyond just obviously how many games they win and whatnot, is what's the evolution of R.J. Barrett, who we haven't really talked about. And I think the future of the Knicks is as good as R.J. Barrett's. And I know he is somewhat of a controversial young player. He's 22 years old. He averaged 20 a game but he did it on very low efficiency. I think he had 51% true shooting. Uh, You know, there are a lot of people who are major advanced stats people who think he still has a chance to be really good Hmm. just because you look at the other peripherals. Uh, You know, for example, the shot selection is good. The self-awareness is good. The ability in a, at the time, 21 year old to realize, you know what? I'm not really a jump shooter. I'm going to play more like Jimmy Butler instead. Uh, I think that self-awareness is rare in a 21 year old. But the evolution of R.J. Barrett is so unbelievably important to this franchise because if R.J. Barrett becomes really good, that's the key. Maybe that's your first star in the door. And if not, maybe he's the key to bringing that first star in the door. Uh, and and if he is just fine enough, that style of player that he is is kind of tough to mesh into a team, right? Because he's... He's a guy who wants the ball. He wants the, not not from a personality perspective, just from a stylistic perspective. He's the type of player you want to give him the ball. You want to let him go at the rim. And if he's not able to say, create threes off of his drives, which right now he's not good enough at doing, and he'll tell you that. If he's not able to get his percentage around the rim up, which right now he's great at getting to the rim, but the percentage around the rim is not good enough. He's really good at getting fouled and he's really good at getting there, but he's not great at making the free throws and he's not great at finishing there. The percentages are too low. And if those stay low and if he's not creating threes, that's a big difference than all of a sudden if he's able to make his reads off of those drives and maybe he's shooting a respectable 60% at the rim and still getting fouled as much and hitting 75 to 80 of his free throws. Now we're talking about a major progression. So I am so curious to see where RJ goes. I think the future of the franchise is, is, is totally and completely tied to his progression. Yeah. I would say that's definitely the biggest thing for me too. And then like in some way connected to that, like can Brunson elevate the, the rest of the guys on the court with him? as opposed to being more of a, you know, an individual driver of offense. That's the thing they've really been missing from their team is somebody that like can create offense for anybody other than themselves. Like RJ is a, is a pretty decent passer for a player in his role. Randall had a really good passing season a couple of years ago, but they haven't had that guy that's like driving the offense for everybody else. And if Brunson can be that, that changes things a little bit. And then, you know, to me after that, 
like the, the big thing to me is tips. Like, will he play the young guys? Will he play the roster the way the front office seems to want him to? And the, the, the biggest thing to me is the, the biggest issue with Tibbs is not playing guys too many minutes or not playing the young guys or whatever. It is his offense, which is stuck in an old time. Like you got to be able to figure out ways to get better shots and not just come down and run a brush screen or the same dribble handoff from the elbow every trip down the court. You got to put guys in better position to succeed offensively, especially with a team that's as limited in terms of guys creating for others and in terms of you know shooting, particularly in the starting lineup as this one is. Like there needs to be some sort of evolution in this offensive scheme, or they're just not going to be able to score enough to capitalize on, on everything they have here. So those are sort of the big, you know, themes for me and, and what I'm looking for. What else you got, Fred? What else do I got? Uh, can, should we talk about Cam Reddish? I mean, I it's it's so. not the number two most interesting storyline, <laughs> most well, important storyline, well, but I think it's damn interesting. You know what? I mean, honestly, they, this team might make the most sense with Cam Reddish playing the four out of any of the other options. Maybe they also I'm only, like, they have two wings on the whole team, basically. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess, I guess it's like two and a half if you want to count Fournier as a wing. He's more of like a you know a, a small guard who's not a point guard. But Redfish is at least a wing-sized player. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, look, there's all the, the reason I mentioned Reddish is because I think Reddish is the the most extreme him and Obi Toppin, but but Reddish is more extreme than Toppin is the most extreme example of like conf- confusion about what kind of you're doing with the young guys, right? Like you don't want to give up the young guys in the, but there's, but there is, you know, Jared mentioned, uh, you know, not meddling in rotations. And I think that's generally a good thing for a front office to not meddle in a coach's rotations. But that being said, you want some sort of same pagedness, right? Um, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm curious about the opportunity for the young guys because you just don't really know what they are. You trade a first for reddish and you just, you're not giving yourself an opportunity to find out what Reddish is because if everyone is healthy at the start of the season, I just can't imagine he's in the rotation to start. And then I said, Cam Reddish, I really should have said Obi Toppin because Toppin has shown the ability to legitimately impact winning. I know I sound like Brad Stevens when I say he's impacting winning, but it it really is what it is because Toppin's such a weird player because of the three things that you want most from a role player, shooting threes, creating something for yourself or others with the ball or playing plus defense Toppin is not really giving you any of those. And yet you just consistently see him change the energy of every single game that he's in. He's such a great cutter. He's so great in transition. He's a great screener. He's great on dribble handoffs. He's actually a quite a, quite a good passer when he gets the opportunity. I think uh, he's so active. And I think that has just shown to be such a plus for them. And he played really well when he got the opportunities last year and Tibbs not giving him those opportunities consistently. And the front office, by the way, looking at the end of last year, when he started with Randall hurt and averaged like 20 a game and the front office looking and saying, you know what, let's, let's bring in a bunch more big men and let's hold on to Randall and just continue to block them. Just the ability to the inability to find room for top in, the inability to find room for reddish for even quickly where it's like, now you got Brunson, you got Grimes, you got Fournier, you got Rose is quickly going to play 25 minutes. Like, I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I just, 
there's this weird disconnect where it's like, we love the young guys. We want to hold on to the young guys. Okay. But what are your actions saying? It's, it's a very weird storyline. Jared, I I'm sure you have absolutely no opinions on this at all, right? <laughs> uh, no, not at all. Um, it doesn't like, it's not the source of like why I'm in therapy. No, I'm just gonna, it's, it's not, but, like if, if my therapist was a Nick fan, I would absolutely complain to her about it, but I, I'm glad you brought up quickly at the end there, because that is the thing to me. Like everybody has been talking about top in and how he needs more time. And it doesn't make sense that they're bringing in guys and blocking him. Um, I think it's just as big of an issue with quickly. Like, I just think he's a lot better than people think. Like he's been in the league two years. He's been among the top, like 40 or 50 guys. And like, in like Raptor at 538 and things like that. But also like, so I, I looked this up uh, since 2000, there's been 17 instances of a player in his first or second season, averaging 17 and a half points, four and a half rebounds, five and a half assists per 36 minutes. One of those guys was quickly last season. The other 16 guys averaged 34 minutes a game on average quickly played 23 and he only hit 30 minutes, 13 times all year. They played Alec Burks at point guard most of the season. They had Alfred Payton the year before. They still look like they're going to have Rose ahead of him this year. And they went out and signed Brunson too. So he might actually play less this year than he did last year. And I just don't think it makes sense. Like, why are they burying this guy who has been good every time they put him on the court, has had a positive impact every time they put him on the court, and like has a, a skill set that they don't really have in terms of like being able to hit threes off of the dribble and to stretch the floor to a significant, you know, space yeah. where most yeah. of the other guys on the team don't, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, and I think that like, I agree with everyone that that top end needs more time. And it doesn't make sense that they, they won't find a way to do that. But I, I don't think enough people are talking about what they're doing. with quickly. No, it's uh, I, I mean, I think this season is going to be very, very interesting. Right. I, I mean, if you, you know, Derek Rose, we'll see whether he's going to be healthy you know, as we just kind of talk through some of these uh, rotation battles. We'll see whether he's going to be healthy. I mean, obviously, quickly, this is his third year. You know, he's going to be trying to prove himself for an extension. They brought in Brunson, who, again, is a good player. You know, I think actually quickly, his offensive game fits pretty well with Brunson, I would say. Um, you know, you've got Grimes, you've got Fournier, but I mean, you know, between Rose randall and fournier those are kind of the older veteran guys you think maybe this is the year that you know maybe they just kind of start to get minimized hey only three years left at you know uh 27 million a year for julius randall after this one but you know we'll we'll, we'll ignore that part just in terms of like what's happening on the floor uh and maybe they do because i i do think those young guys are at least as good uh as the vets uh, and certainly by the end of this year, that will be the case with Fournier and Rosa on the downside and a team option on Rose for next year. Uh, and so, like, is this year they kind of figure out, okay, these young guys are cheaper. They're part of the future. They could be better trade assets if we just played them more. And the vets are out. Or do the vets actually manage to, like, hold on to those positions this year? Like, that's going to be kind of a, a big theme. Um, any actually we're running a little short on time so let's get into some of the the strengths and weaknesses of this team that we haven't discussed yet what sticks out to you as a, as a strength jared um i mean i think rim protection between robinson and hartenstein and then even uh jericho sims protected the rim yeah pretty well last year so and then i think they have a bunch of guys who can get to the rim you know brunson barrett uh even quickly has shown like an ability not necessarily to get all the way to the rim but at least to get into the paint. So 
those would be the two that stand out to me the most. Yeah, I think rim protection is the obvious one with Robinson and Hartenstein and, and uh, Hartenstein. I keep doing that, man. Hey, I, and, you know, uh, it's because if you've been listening to me, I was fucking that up for like all last year. Now I finally got this with Hartenstein. <laughs> and, uh, and even Jericho Sims, too. I, I, Jericho Sims, I, I think, has a chance to be like a, a, a really nice 15, 16, 17-minute a game backup center. Uh, and and I, I think I'll add to Jared as well, just depth in general. They've got they've got 12 guys on the team who, if they're in your rotation, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. That guy can be in an NBA rotation. They've got their 10 regular rotation guys. And then I think Cam Reddish and Jericho Sims looking you know, on, on the outside of it. And if Jericho Sims has to be your backup center for 16 minutes a night, I'm like, okay, I'm not betting an eye at that. Yeah, but Jericho Sims 15, is, is 16, totally nice. 17 minutes a night, not 18 though. 18. He would be, he would be overstretched. Surely. Well, that's the lucky number, Nate. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's only reserved for a guy named Hartenstein. That's when you get your 18, but, but I, uh, you know, they got 12 guys who, who I think if they're in your NBA rotation, you're like, okay, that's fine. And you know what? We're, we're talking about the negatives of that. We're talking about the negatives of like Fournier yeah, blocking yeah. minutes from quickly or whatever. But look, you could, I think you could reasonably make an argument that it is good to have more good players. You don't yeah. want fewer good players. And, and Evan Fournier, while he is flawed, is a, is a, is a good player if you use him right. He's an excellent shooter. And, you know, they, they have 12 guys who can play in the NBA rotation. That matters. And I think that will, that helps you in the regular season. They're deep. Yeah. Another thing I would say is other than Julius Randle playing hard, like everyone on this team plays hard. They'll stick their nose in there. You know, Tom Thibodeau obviously is going to coach defense. Uh, and, you know, that 21 season was magical. And just the way they got into guys in the perimeter and executed on a night to night basis that season was really good i think they can be better defensively this year th- than they were last year and maybe not into that top five level but you know i think they can be, be in the top 10 potentially you know like you mentioned the rim production like hartenstein is as a productive like, I, th- I think he's actually a better player than mitchell robinson um and i, I think we, we may end up seeing that like i had him I think those guys are very similar, but I had him ranked actually higher on my free agent list. I thought it was interesting that Mitchell Robinson got three times the guaranteed money that Isaiah Hartenstein got. Um, so yeah, that that stands out to me. And I think they, they've got a fair number of guys who just can dribble the basketball and, and do something off the dribble. You know, I mean, the, the, we talk about some team, like the Dallas Mavericks have two players who can do that. And the Knicks, Brunson, Rose, Quickly, Barrett, Fournier actually, you know, could, could be a secondary playmaker Randall, for all, all of his flaws, is certainly very capable uh, with the ball in his hands of making decisions, making passes. That's something that's always been an underrated aspect of, of his game. So they do have a lot of guys who can attack. Uh, maybe the, the uh, so quantity is a quality on all its own, possibly in that area. Um, what about uh, weaknesses, guys? Spacing. Perimeter size. Oh, there spacing, we go. That too, Jared. Size. Yeah. Yeah, spacing, um, spacing, and just like if if we're gonna go farther than spacing, just just the pieces generally fitting together, like that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about here, right? Like it's like you take R.J. Barrett in a vacuum, he has a chance to be a a, a good to really good player, but you put him on a team with a bunch of guys who want to operate inside the three point line, it's like that is not optimal for R.J. Uh, we talked about how the roster is not optimal for Julius Randle. We talked about how the roster is not optimal for Jalen Brunson. Uh, it's just, there's, there's, there's like 
player optimization issues in basically every single aspect. Like who is it? It's not really optimal for Mitchell Robinson because you can help off of these shooters when he rim dives, right? It's, it's, it's not really optimal for Obi Toppin because his, his road to playing is blocked. Same thing somewhat with quickly. Like it's really just optimized for like Derek Rose who can get really good backup point guard minutes. And by the way, Derek Rose is when he was healthy last year was still really yeah. good in that yeah. backup point guard role. Like he was their most he important player, player last year. year. Yeah, for I sure. He was they were, their best player. Yeah, he was, but he only played 26 games. But when he played, like he is really good. Uh, so, so as long as he's healthy, he's okay. We just don't know about the health. Uh, but, but you go through the roster and it's like, you can make an argument that each player individually is just not really being optimized. And I, I think that's probably my biggest criticism of the way that they have built this. And it's, it's abstract, but it's like, it's hard to find a guy who's like, that guy is in the best situation for him. And you don't need to put every player in the best situation for them. You want to, you want to start with your best player and build out, but you don't want a roster where almost no one is in the best situation for them. And that that that's kind of where the Knicks are at right now. Yeah. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And, and I mean, the other weakness we hit on is just the front court shooting. Like, they don't have anyone who's a threat to shoot the ball at the four and five positions. Maybe Toppin, waiting for him to show that form that he had at Dayton, but he just has not been able to hit shots for all of his other virtues and and... You know, that's part of why I've I've never really understood the huge hard on for Toppin. Like I understand how he's been effective in a bench role, but I'm just not sure how he really becomes a starter unless you either put a shooter next to him or he starts to hit three pointers. I mean he's still he's able to generate a lot of shots for the player type that he is. Uh and it has been pretty efficient. I know what he does for the transition and stuff, but that's like that's a nice bench piece until he develops a shot or and also obviously gotta get better with his lateral movement or help. Uh, defensively so he could either play some center or defend the power forward position a little better so yeah again i say like if they just had some normal guy or as a stretch four or even you know a three that's why i was like yeah cam reddish might actually be the best four on this team or maybe that's maybe rj barrett is the best four on this team and you, and you play fournier or, or or throw in one of the other guards play brunson and rose together with barrett at the uh at the three um or, or at the four i should say you know that's like uh the th- that i think is just a such a massive weakness um all right, I think we, we got to get into predictions here. We're, we're running out of time. And uh, as much as we've been kind of crapping on this team, Brad noted it, like, actually have some pretty good players. Oh, actually, one more weakness I did want to. Just star power. Like, their best player is 40th best player in the NBA. You know, unless Barrett really takes a step forward. Like, do they even have a top 50 player in the NBA on this team? I, I, think, I think RJ is going to take that leap to top 50 this year. 
I, I think a, he could. That's a if prediction were, that I have. It, he could if like the ecosystem were good, maybe. You know, I think it's just like his his game, like you mentioned, yeah, he gets to the rim, but he can't finish it all. He's not like amazingly athletic. So, but that's because there's nowhere for him to go, right? I mean, that I've been saying this since they drafted him. It just it makes no sense the way they've deployed this roster around this guy who's supposed to be like the crown jewel of the franchise to let him succeed. I mean, hey, like if he actually like if you could just like put a normal four next to him and just let him attack the basket. Hey, he might be the crown jewel in a trade just by himself if you want him to, or he could just be the guy who's going to attract someone else. I mean, I think he's always, I don't think he's ever going to be a superstar, but he could start to put up those type of numbers if they had just had a different group around him. Anyway, I, I, I know I'm driving that into the ground, but. Um, I, I do think we should say, by the way, yeah. um, they got good value on that extension. Um, yeah, totally he's agree. basically like average starter money. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, like this this front office like has some virtues. Like they found guys in the draft. They, uh, you know, even the the Randall deal. Like, yeah, it's turned out terrible. But for where he was as a second team All NBA guy, like that actually seemed like good value at the time. It just he fell off so much. Um, but then they also just like the Tibbs and the way they're building the team is not great. But I mean, if they missed on a single and eh, Toppin, I I didn't love it. Uh, but there are a lot of bad guys in that draft. Um, but you know they haven't really just totally missed on a draft pick some of the guys they found late i mean even even your sims your miles mcbride like i'm excited about those guys so um yeah i, I mean there, it's definitely a better regime than it has been for all you want to uh, complain like um so yeah i i've we've been talking shit about like the roster and the composition and stuff i actually think these guys might be better than people think that- so are we getting into predictions nathaniel is that the move I think we are. And where, where I want to start again, like quietly, yes, they did do the like great run to the number 11 pick. And at the end of the season, when everyone else was tanking, so take these with a little bit of a grain of salt, but the Knicks uh, were 37 and 45 last year and won 3.8 games fewer than expected by cleaning the glass. Like they had a negative 0.1 net rating, basically a 41 win team, um, which is right around, I think what their over under was here. Memory serves me. They were in like the lower, lower, or, a little bit higher than that like but uh and they added Jalen Brunson and Derek Rose missed it all season like they had times last year when they really just didn't have enough good players on the floor I don't think that's ever going to be the case that they are just you know, unless they just get completely destroyed and I think Randall is either gonna play better as he did towards the end of last season or he's just gonna have his role reduced and they really struggled at backup center a lot of times last year with Robinson missing time and Noel basically was a shell like they didn't have like Taj Gibson did yeoman's work but he's not Hardenstein uh so like that and Jericho Sims I think can give them more than they got from some of their backup centers a a year ago until he started to emerge late so I mean they are uh you know they're not gonna be oh man Derek Rose is out like where the season is totally fucked now right like I think their bench is going to absolutely kill people uh next year and They'll make up a lot of maybe what the starters lose. And oh, by the way, the starters aren't going to have a negative 74 net rating for the first two months of the season this year. So, uh, I mean, you know, again, you look at the East and you're like, yeah, man, like, how are these guys going to be better than some of these other teams? Like, you know, are we too optimistic? Like, by definition, like, there are only so many wins to go around. Uh, around. But, like, I, I I think these guys, like, on paper, I don't see a reason why they wouldn't be better than last year. What do you guys think? I'm in the same boat. Like, especially because, like, last year, they basically played, like, a 500 team. 
And like, I think that they, they should be better for all the reasons you mentioned. Like I came into this being like, oh, I'm going to say, you know, like 39, 40 wins, like that kind of makes sense based on the East being better. And they won 37 last year, but it's like everything we talk about in terms of the actual guys on the team, as opposed to like how everything fits or who's going to play when, like it leads me to believe that they should be better than that. And I find myself creeping up into like the, the low to mid forties. And I feel like that's, sort of where I settle, but I also think it's like a very narrow band. Like I don't see the they're gonna be a 50 win team version of this, but I also don't see the they're gonna be a 25 win team version of this. I feel like it's like, you know, like 37 to 45 or something like that. And like they're gonna finish somewhere in there, depending on how the balances go. Yeah, I think that's about fair. I think I might be a little bit lower on them than you guys. And most of it just comes from the East. Like Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Toronto, Brooklyn, Cleveland, like that's seven teams that I would bet an extraordinary amount of money are better than them, right? And so that that kind of caps them out at eight. And we still haven't talked about Atlanta. We still haven't talked about Chicago. Uh, you know, I just think I think it's I think it's just tough. I mean, I do think the the quality of the East and the depth of the East really does matter uh i think most realistically i think i have them somewhere around 10 or 9 and if that's the case i think it's it's really hard i know last year 10th place won 43 games but if you look back in history and try to find a 10th a 10th place team that won 43 games it is unbelievably rare normally you kind of have that reversed at at 39 wins or 38 wins or 37 wins and I, i think that is a is more realistic something in that 38 to 41 range um i don't want to say 37 because that's what they won last year and i do think they are better than they were last year uh but i think something in that 38 to 41 range is is probably the the sweet spot so a few things to add to that um the the east being better and and also you know what the number of wins that the 10th seed is going to have i think you this is an interesting time for the league where you kind of have about 20 to 22 23 teams that are trying going to the season and seven that just you know, are not in theory realistic threats. Now, eh, one of those may emerge uh, next day a couple of years ago, but as we try to predict it here, I think it is possible to have that many good teams because there are going to be a bunch of these teams that are kind of just really don't have a pathway to get above 30 wins. And then the Knicks, I think are much more, are much better positioned to withstand injuries than some of the teams above them. It's like some of the teams above them that you mentioned are going to just have one of their stars is just going to miss 45 games and they're not going to be in the playoffs, right? Like we don't know who that's going to be, but that's going to happen to someone like the Nets, uh, you know, they could end up trading KD and Kyrie could just go crazy or those two guys could get injured. Like they haven't even, even when they want to be on the floor, the Nets, you know, haven't been healthy. Same thing with Ben Simmons, right? Like you could have a few of these teams, you know, what if Trey Young just misses half the year for Atlanta? Well, then they're done, right? Like, and you, there isn't really a player on the Knicks that you can say that about. And so I think they are in a better, a more resilient place to just be competent. Um, let's think about them from an offensive and defensive standpoint. 21st on offense, 12th on defense a year ago. What do you guys foresee as far as like possible changes in those numbers? I think that that seems like about right, like slightly above average on offense, slightly below average on defense, or the other way around. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not sure I see... The, like I'm actually surprised they made it to 21st in offense. Um, you know I don't see that getting a lot better, even though it kind of seems like they should be better on offense this year. 
I actually think the defense just I, I thought that part of why they struggled was just not having that great rim protector for a lot of last season and I think they're just going to have that this year and I think you know I again I think this team's bench boy um you know adding Hardenstein now like as a rim protector they're going to kill people in transition like it's I think it's going to be really really good um so you know I could see them getting back I think they're going to be in the lower end of the top 10 on defense probably like i think I, I think this team will have a positive net rating um i don't and they might be i don't know where they're going to be in terms of the clutch like they're a good clutch team a couple of years ago as well they they weren't last year um but i think ultimately i'm going to pick this team for 42 wins i think that sounds yeah, I think like, like seven to seven to twelve on defense and like 16 to 20 on offense or something like that and that's yeah. like a 500-ish team. Like, I was going to go with, like, 41 and 41. Okay. It's going to be like an average basketball team. Look, a lot of it is going to be on just who they play, right? Like, if they feel obligated to play Fournier 26 minutes and and it hurts their defense and some of the guys who have had ridiculously great net ratings, like, you look at the young guys and you look at the net ratings, like, Jared alluded to this, but we didn't explicitly say it, like, Quickly, they were. I think they were plus fourteen with per hundred possessions with Quickly on the floor last year. Toppin had a ridiculously high net rating when he was on the floor. Uh, you watch it; the eye test follows that stuff. And Nate, you 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 mentioned like why is everybody you know why are Knicks fans so excited about Toppin? And I think that's part of the reason why it's like when he is on the floor, they just outscore opponents. Uh, yeah. On top of the fact that he's he's very exciting. You know, he's very loud sure, sure. in what he does, right? Like he's, he's dunking on dudes and getting out in transition. He's fast as hell and changing. Like he, he's one of the few off ball guys that actually changes the pace of the game. Normally it's a, it's a guard yeah. who changes the pace of the yeah. game, right? No, that Not just that like statistically a, a has, has been shown. Yeah, no, that's uh, all that's true. Yeah. That's why I think he's a really nice bench bench piece. Uh, and yeah. does, does, especially going up against the other team's bench and, and, you know, in that, early second quarter early fourth fourth quarter stint like he's effective like he definitely you know has improved the team in the ways you cited i'm just like man hey this guy needs to start over julius randall like he'll be the if he just started like everything would be fine i i can't get to that level. sure that's fair i i think part of it is just going to be on how many guys they play and and who they play and how much they play i'll i think something around 20th on offense makes sense it's just like the shooting is not there it's just not and i know they upgraded at point guard but the three-point shooting is not there and their top two guys last year usage wise were tremendously inefficient and that just puts a cap on your offense and i just have to see them at least reach league average efficiency with rj and randall before i can say that they're league average on offense defensively i think they have a chance to get into the bottom part of the top 10 because they were they were 11th or 12th last year and i think they have a chance to get up there especially if like robinson can can be a little better than he was at the start of the season because he got off to a really slow start last year too i i'm gonna put him at i'm gonna put him at at at, i said 38 to 41 i'm gonna put him at at 40 wins and at the nine seed in the east okay well we can wrap up here because jared has to go watch uh football I'm, i'm not sure what sport that is fred has to start researching number of shots taken by left-handed players on teams in nba history uh which i think actually could be researched on basketball they have like a handed uh basketball and, uh, has stuff. and i'm gonna go take care of my daughter because my wife uh has to work and it's a sunday so uh thanks gentlemen for joining us where can we keep up with everything you're doing uh this season jared 
thanks for having me. Uh, I will be uh, at 5.38 a lot. Um, season preview stuff, predictions that everybody hates, but I don't run the model, so don't yell at me. Actually, yell at me. I don't care. Uh, but I'll be, I'll be writing the season preview coming pretty soon and going to you know have a lot of my stuff there throughout the season. And uh, if you want to follow my TV takes, I'm at Dubin 5 And Fred, obviously, The Athletic. Are you are you at Fred Katz? You are right. I'm at I'm at Fred Katz. You, yeah. This is your warning. I know you're you're Don't just like it. I'm just so jealous that you got to just have your name be your Twitter. No NBA, no number after it. Well, you got to have your your name be your podcast, so we're even. All right, gentlemen. Uh, it, it has been a joy as always, and looking forward to seeing you guys uh, during this season. Talk to y'all soon. All right, I want to welcome on the man of the hour in NBA media, the most in-demand podcast guest. He's kind enough to join us again this year, despite being a featured guest on much larger podcasts than this one. Chris Fedor to Talk Cavs. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good, Nate. How are you doing, man? Oh, well, I'm uh, enjoying parenthood so far. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I'm enjoying, you know, losing uh, hours of sleep at night (laughs) for the time being. But, you know, our, our days are at least a little a uh, little more flexible so i could catch up during the day if i need to and uh most importantly for at least our listeners very excited for this season and of course one of the teams i'm probably in my top three that i'm most excited to see at the start of this is the Cavs? uh just before we even kind of get into this team like what is the mood right now in cleveland with the acquisition of donovan mitchell and the three other tentpole players they have as well so i gotta ask you were they yeah. top three before the donovan mitchell trade or did they vault to the top three because of the mitchell trade oh no certainly because of the mitchell okay. trade. i think i mean I, I had a decent idea of what they might look like although i still was very interested because yeah. despite the fact that they had some really nice moments and stretches last year we didn't get to see them whole for that long you know talking right. about garland mobley allen and a you know reasonably deep supporting cast like you know at least a couple other guys who could dribble <laughs> besides uh <laughs> Uh, uh, on the team. So so I was interested to see them um, and to see whether that alchemy that they found for a couple of months there, you know, in the December, January timeframe, they had that rousing win over the Bucks, uh yep. to really uh, see whether that was was real, you know, wh- where they were going to fit in that East hierarchy. But now, you know, with Mitchell, I mean, that's this is just going to be a fascinating team, both just with the talent involved, the evolution of the young players, and right. also because this is such an interesting exercise in team building, building it basically around two six foot guards and then two seven footers in the paint. You know, what is that going to look like on offense and defense? You've got a lot of talent, but you wonder what the fit is going to be. Yeah. So Nate, the, the vibe around the town, obviously there was excitement for the Cavs coming into this season because they were coming off a 44 win season because they advanced to the play in tournament. And because there were a lot of people that felt like there was some growth that could happen internally that could allow the Cavs to take another step forward coming into this year. Um, Darius Garland, Jared Allen, Evan Mobley, they were the three building blocks. They were the guys that everything was going to be centered around coming into this year. And then you add Donovan Mitchell and it just enhances your chances. It it gives you a different level of hope. It gives you a different level of belief because there are some stylistic things that I think people should be concerned about when it comes to Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell together. And I'm sure we're going to get into those. But the bottom line is the talent upgrade that they made by adding somebody like Donovan Mitchell, who you could argue is a 
top 20 overall player in the entire NBA. You could argue as one of the best shooting guards, if not the best shooting guard in the entire NBA. Like that kind of talent upgrade, that opens possibilities, right? Like if we would have been talking about the Cavs about a month and a half ago, we would have been talking about them as a team that is close to Chicago and close to Toronto and Atlanta and New York. And the whole question would have been, okay, are they a 46-win team? Are they a 48-win team? Like, do they have to fight their way into the playoffs through the play-in tournament once again? And it's just like, there are tiers in the Eastern Conference, and I think it would have been honest to say that the Cavs, before the trade, weren't on the same level or close to the level of Boston and Milwaukee and Philadelphia and Miami and maybe even Brooklyn, depending on what you make of them. They were closer to those other teams like Atlanta and Toronto and Chicago. Now, I think you can start having a conversation about the Cavs' ceiling being lifted and like... Like, how high in the Eastern Conference do they belong? And you couldn't have that conversation before they added somebody like Donovan Mitchell. Yeah, certainly not, at least without substantial development from the likes of Garland. Crazy and internal and, growth, yeah. And Allen, you know, in a two to three year time frame, maybe. Yep. You know, and, and obviously, I still think that Evan Mobley is is the key here to whether this team really does b- become a championship contender. You know, if he can become an mm-hmm. Anthony Davis type of player, then, you know, you're really cooking, cooking with gas. But, we, you know, we'll talk a lot more uh, about him and, you know, what to expect from him this year and you know the trade was we've been talking basically since lebron james left just what a boulevard of broken dreams the Cavs three position has been since then you know even using the the pick on a coro just not being able to yep. get people to sign there and in free agency they've probably been the worst small forwards in the nba in aggregate yep. over the past four seasons and so you would have thought okay any trade is going to focus on that but as i alluded to in the open they really kind of needed somebody else who could dribble on this team besides Darius Garland and right. he you know he fought gamely through a, a back injury like you thought maybe they could be in big trouble uh and not even make the play in once like he started to suffer from that but he fought back was clearly limited through a lot of that second half of the season but clearly the burden on him was far too high and then you know we saw that again uh in the crucible of those play in matchups uh, when they weren't able to uh make the playoffs and defend their seed so mm-hmm. I think you know may, ideally yeah okay they could have got Kevin Durant or something like that's probably not realistic <laughs> and this is other than Kevin Love who they gave up the number one pick for the best player yeah. the Cavs have ever traded for at least as of the time they made some great trades back in the 80s you know to, to get uh some of the guys that they did then but yep. uh yeah this is uh so they did really fill a need here a need also of just you know Donovan Mitchell has been successful as the backup point guard in Utah the last couple of seasons as well so uh you just wish there was like a little bit left in the cupboard to fill that one big hole that that still exists on the wing which probably talk about but i I wanted to ask you i mean did you have any idea this was coming was that this was even a possibility for them like what was your reaction when you first heard the news this way nate i did not think the Cavs would have had the best deal to get Donovan Mitchell. Yeah. Like if everybody put their chips on the table and gave their best offer, there was not a single part of me that thought Utah was going to take the Cavs packet. But did I know that the two teams were having conversations? Yeah. Did I know that the Cavs were interested? Yeah. But there was pessimism even from the Cavs that they could get this thing across the finish line. And there are still people with the Cavs 
that said up until the day that they actually got Donovan Mitchell, someone's going to beat our offer. Somebody should beat our offer. They thought New York was the deal that Utah wanted most. They thought New York was the team that was going to give Utah what it wanted most. But at the end of the day, when things started to break down between the Jazz and the Knicks, the Cavs had what was going to be a competitive offer. They were always going to have a competitive offer because they they don't care as much about draft picks into the future because of what they're already building here. And because, you know, they've got young assets that could be attractive to other um, teams in a potential trade package. So these conversations between the Cavs and the Jazz, they started way back at Summer League in July. But the feeling that the Cavs got leaving Summer League was, we don't have enough. Their, Their price tag for Donovan Mitchell is just too high. But once the Cavs and the Jazz had deeper conversations and Kobe Altman said to Justin Zanuck, hey, put something together that doesn't include Darius, Evan, or Jarrett. Is there a pathway to get something done excluding all three of those guys? And when the Cavs got the vibe that, hey, there is a path with Markinen, with Colin Sexton, with Abashi, with a bunch of first-round picks, um, they started to get a little bit more optimistic, saying we, we're competitive here, and it, it may come down to just us in New York with, with whichever team is, is the one that's going to satisfy the Jazz the most, with, with whatever team is, is going to um, make the negotiations go the way that Utah wants them to go. Um, so I was surprised that the Cavs were the ones that had the offer that Utah accepted. I was also surprised that the Cavs were able to get a player the caliber of Donovan Mitchell without including either Darius, Jarrett, Evan. Any one of those three would have been a complete deal breaker. The Cavs were not sure. going to even consider that whatsoever. But for them to get this kind of talent for what they gave up, um, I, I thought it was great work by the Cavs front office. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess that basically answers my next question of just, I've been very t- torn on this trade from the Cavs perspective, more than mm-hmm. basically any trade I can think of, of like whether I would have done it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I try to think of like, what would the path not traveled have been? I ultimately come down on the side that I would do it, particularly because if things don't work out with Mitchell, you could probably reroute him and recoup some yep. of, the, of those assets in a couple of years. Also that the extension rules may change and then they may be able to extend him more easily in the rising mm-hmm. cap environment so I, I i think you know they're they're protected i think if it doesn't work out and it is a swing worth taking in terms of this player and and uh you know and it sounds like from your standpoint that you're you know you're like this is a no-brainer definitely they should have done it yeah i mean i think this is stylistically you're right this isn't the kind of player that they were desperate for um this isn't a guy that that fits yeah. what was their biggest need yeah um, I, I mean quick quickly you know he's i mean people have made this comparison and i kind of laugh at it i think that's mostly just from a trolling standpoint like you know because mitchell and Sexton statistics are right like, you know yes. superficially very similar obviously mitchell's a much better player but you did see even in that short time that Sexton played last year that it wasn't it wasn't a perfect style fit with that type of player next to Darius Garland. Right, right. And I think if the Cavs had their choice and they could walk into like a superstar store and they could get whoever it is they wanted for what they gave to Utah, 
Donovan Mitchell wouldn't be at the top of that list, right? But Brandon Ingram wasn't available. Jalen Brown wasn't available. Jason Tatum wasn't available. Like just because the Cavs have a desperate need to fill that particular position and that particular skill set, it doesn't mean that those players are going to be made available to them, right? You can't just go to Phoenix and say, hey, we've got this big package and Utah would take it for Donovan Mitchell. How about you take it for Bridges? You know what I mean? It doesn't work that way. So the guys that were available this off season that the Cavs could have taken a run at the list was basically DeJounte Murray and Donovan Mitchell and the Cavs had an opportunity to upgrade their talent level Um, they had an opportunity to get better and raise their ceiling of where they want to go Uh, they increased their chances of, of being a legitimate contender in their Eastern Conference chase Um, with this particular trade for Donovan Mitchell. So I I think from that standpoint, it's the kind of player that they didn't already have on this roster, not from a stylistic standpoint, but from just an overall talent standpoint. So I think it's a move that they had to make. I think it's a move that obviously increases their chances of of being a legitimate threat in the Eastern Conference in a way that they were. And if if I had to really workshop it through, as you look at the playoffs and you wonder about the, the versatility of this team the inex defensively the inexperience uh you know evan mobley does does he develop enough of the three-point shot to where you can really spread the floor and is that really what you even want him doing um you know is that mobley allen pairing going to be as good in the playoffs as it was in the regular season jb bickerstaff is an unproven playoff coach i mean Mm -hmm. there are many many questions that if i had to you really forced me to say of like you know are the Cavs going to make an nba finals in this upcoming era i would probably probably say no because i uh, of those question marks um however i mean hey if you want to just go win 50 games a year for the next five six years like that's 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 a lot better than what this team has been without lebron james so even even if that's kind of where this ends up you know i don't think that makes this a bad trade necessarily and i do think there is some upside we just don't know what these two bigs together when they're fully formed could yeah. look like on either end and then also i i want to focus on this too because i don't think this has been a big storyline here i think this is going to be a very very interesting referendum on how good Donovan Mitchell actually is. You know, is he just a guy who could come in, you know, he puts up 25 points a game, but not unbelievably efficiently. Uh, You know, his jazz offenses weren't amazing the first couple of years, but they had Ricky Rubio, a non-shooter next to him, and the two bigs played together Mm -hmm. a lot. Jay Crowder was having, you know, wasn't shooting the ball well. Then as soon as the, they brought in Bogdanovich and Conley, it was maybe the best offense in the league in the regular season over the last couple of years. How much was Donovan Mitchell driving that this isn't going to be that perfect ecosystem for him offensively and we also of course have the defensive questions so how much better can he get is this age 26 season should be able to get better you know can he work a little bit more in an off-ball role but you know is he a guy who can pop into that really you know top 15 top 10 level so I I, you know because it's kind of like I think if people are like okay how many games I'm predicting the Cavs to win before this and how many after I don't think there's actually like that big of a delta in what people were predicting but let's find out let's find out how good yeah donovan mitchell is and so what's kind of your your feeling on like how he's gonna fit in and the hierarchy and you know i'm sure you've looked at his game quite a lot in your work after the trade what are your thoughts on just how how he's he is going to be nate i think there are two things to that i think the first thing is one of the reasons why the Cavs were attracted to somebody like donovan is because of the experience and maturity that he has 
Look, a lot of these guys that the Cavs have on this roster have not been in big-time games. They have not been to the playoffs. They don't know what it looks like. They don't know what it feels like. And Donovan is somebody who has been in the playoffs every single year throughout his career. And I think it came across in his introductory press conference. There is a level of maturity and experience that he brings to this group that the other guys just don't have because they're not as far along in their career as Donovan because they haven't had the opportunity to see the same things as Donovan. He's gone through difficult moments. He's also gone through great moments throughout the course of his career. And just LeBron always used to say when he was here in Cleveland, there is no substitute for experience. And that level of experience that Donovan brings, I think, is going to trickle throughout the entire roster. I think it's going to benefit these guys greatly to have somebody like that. It's one thing for Kevin Love to bring that experience, right? And Ricky Rubio and Robin Lopez. But the role that they're going to have in the team's success is very, very different than the role that Donovan Mitchell can have. So this is supposed to be your alpha who brings all those different things rather than like your sixth or seventh man in the rotation that brings all those things that you really need and you really value. The second thing that I would say, Nate, is I think in, in, in covering the NBA for as long as I have, I think there are 82 game players and I think there are seven game players. Yeah. And I think Donovan's the kind of guy in a seven game series surrounded by what he's going to be surrounded with here in Cleveland that can elevate the Cavs in that kind of environment. Because think about this. If you go back to the play-in tournament games last year for the Cavs against Brooklyn and Atlanta, no matter who Darius Garland was on the floor with, Isaac Okoro, Karis LeVert, Lowry Markin, didn't matter. The opponent just threw extra guys at Darius. I mean, in the Brooklyn series... Seth Curry on one ankle was guarding Isaac Okoro, but he was so far away from Isaac Okoro yeah. that he was the extra defender that Brooklyn used to deter Darius Garland from driving to the paint. And then in the second half against Atlanta, it didn't matter that Karis LeVert was out there on the court. Karis's defender was thrown at Darius. So Darius was getting all the eyes of the defense. He was getting all the attention of the defense. And, and Donovan Mitchell is the same kind of guy where he's used to having that kind of attention from the opposing defense. Well, now the Cavs have two guys like that, two playmakers, two creators that usually would command the full attention of the opposing defense. It's not going to work the same kind of way. Defenses can't approach the Cavs the same kind of way that they used to. So I think having Darius and, and, and Donovan together in a playoff environment, I think that is going to really, really show itself. If the Cavs get there, I think they have a chance to get there, but I think we have to put if the Cavs get there. And in that kind of environment, I think you're going to see the impact of somebody like Donovan more so than in the regular season. Yeah, and he's had some very, very good playoff moments, obviously. Big time, series yeah. Against Denver. Now, I will caution that those big games against Denver were some of the worst defending I've ever seen in the playoffs. But, you know, he's put That's up, right. uh, you know, two 50-point games in a series. There's been some bad defenses in the playoffs before. Uh, you know, that is yep. the bubble. But then also in the, the two series that he played last year, 
year as well, even uh, with them, or last year being 2021, uh, with, with the ankle issue early on in that Clippers series, he was unbelievable with no Mike Conley. So I, I do think like that there is that possibility. He had a very, very difficult playoffs last year, although the Jazz mm-hmm. situation was imploding and that Dallas defense actually was pretty good uh, until they got to Golden State. But yeah, I, I, again, I think there is the possibility that he could be this guy who really elevates himself in the playoffs and he can get three pointers in, in isolation off the dribble. You know, I'm hoping that his off ball game is going to improve. But yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm just fascinated to see him. And then, you know, I, I would say to me, Darius Garland, is, you know, took the step forward all-star level. I thought he deserved to be there. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's going to be hard for him statistically other than just getting more efficient and maybe doing some off ball and deep three-point shooting himself to take another huge step forward because you'll have Mitchell and his over 30% usage in the lineup. So mm-hmm. at Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The next big variable to me on this team is what Evan Mobley is going to be. And I thought he was the best defensive rookie since Tim Duncan. I thought he should have won rookie of the year over Scotty Barnes. The fact that Barnes passed him at the end of the year, I thought was a little bit weird. Um, But so, so what do you make of Evan Mobley going into this year and where can he realistically take another step forward? There were times last year, Nate, that the Cavs felt like let's not put too much on Evan too soon. And there were areas of his game that down the road, they absolutely wanted to explore. And I wrote about this for Cleveland.com. The film clips that the Cavs pulled for Evan, different pieces of games of different guys. It was Giannis. It was Anthony Davis. It was Dirk. It was Kevin Garnett. So they have that view of Evan that down the road, he can be that type of player offensively and defensively. But they just didn't want to put too much on him as a rookie. So I think at times, like J.B. Bickerstaff had to pull the reins back from himself. Like, I think this guy is incredibly talented. I think there's more to pull out of him. But let's not do it right away. Let's do it the right way when it comes to his development. So I think this year, in his second year, I've been told that he's added more strength, more muscle. He's worked a lot on his perimeter skill set this offseason. I think coming into this year, the Cavs are going to unlock Evan in a different kind of way. I think they're going to use him more as a hub of the offense at times. Um, I think they're going to explore the passing ability that he has at times. I think they're going to let him play more comfortably out on the perimeter and and just use those skills that make him so different and so unique. Um, I think he's going to play the four. I think he's going to play the five. I think at times he'll defend some threes um, because he's capable of doing that out there on the perimeter. So some of the things that I think people watched with Evan 
and saw the flashes of, I think those are going to be more prominent coming into year two here. And it's it's a really exciting pairing to me to think of Evan and Jarrett together, because if there's a place in the NBA where it can work with two smaller guards, Donovan's a smaller guard, um, at least in terms of his height, and Darius Garland is a smaller guard, at least in terms of his height as well, and they're not great defenders. Neither one of those guys are great defenders. So if it's going to work with that kind of backcourt setup, I, I think here in Cleveland is a place where it can because of the protection that Evan and Jarrett have behind those guys. Yeah, you know, for, and Mobley, again, I mean, I think it, incremental improvement defensively you know, is what I'm expecting. He's already so good that, you know, I mean, he could even be in the defensive player of the year conversation this year. Though, yep. you know, Jarrett Allen kind of takes some of his, his shot blocks away as well. Like he is going to have to play more on the perimeter. I've even gotten a lot of questions in, in some of the live shows that I've done about, hey, well, why don't they just put Evan Mobley on some of these big wings on the other team and i i mean what's what's your thought on that i i think it has some pros and some yeah i mean i think they're going to do that at times but but i think they like the protection that they have with Jarrett and evan um along that back line evan is a weak side help defender um Jarrett as a guy um right around the rim so i i think it's something that that evan has the ability to do i think the Cavs believe evan can handle some of those matchups out there on the perimeter i think they're going to give him more of that freedom to do that but what he can do around the rim defensively is something that's really really exciting that there's a given tape take there for the Cavs if they're going to implement him that same kind of way schematically yeah I think it's something where I understand why people say that because hey if you did just rank all of the Cavaliers in terms of who would you want defending in isolation against Jason Tatum or Kevin Durant right. Evan Mobley is clearly at the top of that list he uses right. his length to contain beautifully you know against some of the best switch guards in the league he held his own the problem with him being the primary matchup is they have this thing in basketball called a screen and Evan Mobley is seven foot and he's probably not going to be able to get through that and hey if the Cavs had the personnel to switch everything then great right Right. you could put somebody you you don't have to get through that screen but the Cavs don't have that you know so if Kevin Durant is going to get a screen from whoever Darius Garland or Donovan Mitchell is guarding now Mobley has to get through that screen that's going to be too difficult you end up with uh, KD being guarded by Mitchell or Garland or you have to put two on the ball and I also like Mobley I think he's more effective okay he have him be guarding the guy who's setting the screen and then now late in the possession he's switching out onto that guy and you have the matchup potentially that you want or you have to force someone else to set a screen and hey you know what maybe you are getting Donovan Mitchell onto Kevin Durant but you still then have Jared Allen and Evan Mobley behind that uh that you uh Donovan Mitchell can force into as opposed to now you've got Mobley switched out on the perimeter on someone so I I think it makes more sense generally to keep Mobley out of that. And then also, let's not forget, he's not going to play every minute with Jared Allen. He's going to be the backup center probably. You know, Lopez will be in the regular season, but not in the playoffs. So Mm -hmm. if he's playing center, then obviously, you know, with Kevin Love, he's not going to be able to guard those guys. Yeah. I mean, I asked somebody with the Cavs um, on the coaching staff, what about Evan playing the three? Because that's such a big weakness for you guy. Mm. And they said, sparingly yeah that that's something that they believe he can do at times because he's just that good but it's about the best combinations for them two man three man four man five man all that kind of stuff it's about a role that you want to put the guy into as well 
So I just don't think that's as much of an option for the Cavs at the three as it is for them to either go with Okoro, Lavert, Dean Wade, Lamar Stevens, Jetty Osman, one of those kinds of guys. I would say that that if that happens, it would be very, very sparingly for the Cavs. Yeah, it does get your five best players on the court in theory uh, with Kevin Love as well. That might, yeah. that might actually be the best offensive group that they can put on the floor because then Love kind of just plays the three uh, offensively with the, his shooting and he's with his size, he'll probably be guarded by a smaller player or Mobley will be. They'll, they'll, they'll open up some post-up options, some offensive rebounding mm-hmm. options, etc. So yeah, I, I mean, I think that's certainly something they should explore and uh, J.B. Bickerstaff's been known to go that direction. <laughs> before so uh with some of the, some of the big groups with marking in at three or nance at the three uh over the years yeah um yeah i think uh, how are they going to use mobley offense i mean we talked about it a little bit but i, I think it's interesting I've loved him as a passer. I think that's kind of an underutilized yeah. situation. And particularly when you have two ball dominant guards, sometimes the way to avoid any jealousy is you give neither of them the ball and you work through the elbows yep. and the handoff game. Yep. And you've got Jared Allen, one of the best guys in the dunker spot. So maybe if they could yep. work through him at the elbows more, I'd love to see that and see how that goes. It's coming this year. There's no doubt about yeah. it. The Cavs believe that, that Evan has that ability and I would expect him to be used more as an offensive hub. They like when the ball is 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 in his hands because he usually makes the right decisions because he doesn't panic um, because he can get a shot off over guys and that's something that he has worked on throughout the course of this offseason is extending his range and getting the touch down a little bit better than what it was as a rookie so as we talk about the evolution of Evan Mobley I absolutely think it is put him at the elbow, allow him to be an offensive hub. Very similar to Kevin Garnett, very similar to Chris Bosh, very similar to Anthony Davis. Um, and, and Evan Mobley, you know, he grew up as a guard. He is a big man with guard skills. So the dribbling, the ball handling, the shot creation, and the passing, all of those things are going to be added to Evan throughout the course of this year. Because if you think about it, Nate, at the end of last year, once the Cavs lost Colin Sexton and once they lost Ricky Rubio and Karis LeVert, that trade wasn't working out as well as the Cavs had hoped. In the final two months of the season, um, especially with Jared Allen injured at the same time, the Cavs offense became Darius just create something. Go out there, run, pick and roll, go out there, break the defense down and create for yourself and create for others. And I think the Cavs know that they didn't have enough shot creation last year. And shot creation doesn't have to always come from guards. I think they're going to allow Evan to create offense for the Cavs in a way that um, they didn't as much last year when he was a rookie. Yeah, now the jump shot is the other thing for him. He was uh, 23 of 92 three, so basically one attempt, yeah. uh, one and a half attempts per game and 25% there. And so if he is going to be involved in this handoff game, well, he needs to be a, a threat to at least shoot the ball because otherwise you can just double team whoever he hands off to, uh, throw it back in the arc. Now he could then attack off the dribble if he's got space in front of him. That's another thing that I really... You know, you mentioned that he's working on that he's not like the most explosive guy just like cutting right. down the lane and dunking on people like he kind of defaults more to like a short range semi-hook floater at times but if he can just be enough of a threat to come down the lane and finish then he can draw the help get the alley-oop to allen or throw it to a corner shooter
shooter. So I, I think you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how he evolves. You know, he's not a great free throw shooter either. Only 66% last year doesn't get to the line a, a ton either. So I'm interested to see uh, how that jump shot evolves. I mean, at some point, that's going to have to be a major weapon for him. I'm not sure it's realistic this year um, because there are going to be times, even though as much as you want him involved, where he's going to have to uh, make spot up shots. So, so from some yeah, of the things on, that, that I have seen both um, following shoot around before shoot around before practice after practice and some of the stuff that I've been told um, from his offseason this year I, I think there's going to be a Kevin Garnett type fadeaway from Evan Mobley that you're going to see more and more and more and you're right like a lot of it was floaters short hooks coming into the NBA Nate Evan Mobley was in like the 90th percentile on floaters coming out of USC so that was something that he was very comfortable with coming into the league but now I think you're going to start seeing some face-up jumpers I think you're going to see some mid-range fadeaways and I think he's going to continue to extend his game out to the three-point line seeing how much he works on those particular shots I would expect him to one have more of a green light for those things offensively and two I think his confidence has built throughout the last year year and a half to start using those types of shots more in game situations yeah and hopefully this will be a team that feels secure enough about uh, their potential playoff destiny to you know let him explore things at least through the bulk of the game i'm sure mitchell and, and garland will be the main guys as For the sure. closers and this is something i think you and i talked about last year of just you know how just like what a quiet worker he is you know just that mentality he has to continue yep. to get better so i i'm i'm very hopeful with that Let's talk about the three now. What the hell are they going to do there? <laughs> I mean, the internal options, if if I had to put money on it right now, the front runner would be Isaac Okoro. Um, I, I think it's not about, for the Cavs, it's not about the most talented five players on the court at the same time to start. Um, it's not even about the best players that you have on the court to start. J.B. Bickerstaff is very much a, how do these guys fit? How do their games complement one another? One of the things that he really, really liked about Markinen at the three is that he brought some shooting and some floor spacing that Jarrett and Evan didn't have last year. Um, another thing that he liked about Markinen at three was the fact that it gave them a third seven-footer that had some skill and had some size and versatility and athleticism. So it was weird. It was unconventional, but it was about how those five guys fit alongside one another. And I think if if you think about the skill set that Okoro brings, he doesn't need the ball in his hands offensively, right? He's not going to dominate possessions. He's not going to try and do, quote unquote, too much with Darius and Donovan already in the game. And then Jared and Evan also as threats offensively. And then from a defensive standpoint, there are legitimate questions about Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland together in the backcourt. There are legitimate questions about Darius individually. There are questions about Donovan individually from a defensive standpoint. So I just think the things that the Cavs would want most to complete that five-man starting lineup, Isaac brings them. But I've also been told not to rule out Karis LeVert. 
And I don't think it makes a lot of sense because he's a ball dominant player because he's going to hijack offensive possessions. And I don't know how it would work with Darius Donovan and Karras together, but I keep being told by people that, that know more than me that are responsible for making these kinds of decisions that at times early in his career, Karis Levert was the quote unquote stopper for the Brooklyn Nets, that he was the guy that, that was put on the opponent's best wing offensive player. And he wasn't great, but he held his own enough. And if they could get Karis back into that particular mindset, it's something that I think they would be willing to explore. Well, Karis probably not could play that much if he can't defend. You know, I, I think that's right. They're going to try to get that. I mean, particularly once Rubio comes back, if he can't at least play some three, he's going to be the fourth guard and going into yep. a contract year, which is not uh, amazing for him. And yeah, you know, I'm not surprised that they're high on Karis, you know, because <laughs> the, those are the same people who thought it was a good idea to give a first round pick to trade for him at, uh, in, yep. in a move that I think uh, really has not aged particularly well. I, I was not a fan of it at the time because I felt like it was just trying to accelerate their timeline just to make the playoffs last year. And it just like, hey, you've got these three young players like play for later. And hey, now if they had that 2023 first round pick, maybe they could use it to go trade for a three. They could have maybe they could have just gotten Boyan Bogdanovich, something like that. Right. right? Like that's so uh, th- that was a disappointing move. I don't think it's it's worked out. And particularly in light of the fact that they got Donovan Mitchell, who's does the same things as Levert way better now. Um, But, you know, he, he is still a, a, a guy guy who's been in rotations like they don't have a ton of those guys so uh, if they can get something out I mean the biggest reason I don't like him at the three even more maybe than the defense is just his spot up shooting has been yeah pretty you mentioned yeah I mean getting guarded in the plans him and Isaac both have that flaw right Isaac Okoro is a guy who I don't know if there's anybody else in the NBA that gets as many open shots consistently as I, Isaac I think Okoro I've actually I, I'm not sure where I heard this it might have been on a podcast uh, that just literally with the second spectrum tracking data like he gets yeah. the most open three yeah it's either the most or second most depending on what you classify as enough attempts to yeah. actually qualify but I mean <laughs> his average shot um between him and the defender like the distance between those guys on his shot is like nine feet or something like that it's absolutely ridiculous so those open shots are going to be there for somebody isaac karis and they have that same flaw on the offensive end you know jetty osman is probably the most reliable outside shooter of the internal um considerations at the three spot but he's very very erratic for a variety of reasons and jb bickerstaff lost a lot of trust in him throughout the course of the season at the end of the season especially where he was in the rotation one night he was out of the rotation for a couple of nights then he went back in the rotation so I mean Jetty Osman is kind of who he is at this stage of his career he is not a starter quality small forward and I think that's the thing that they're probably going to run into Nate if you talk about the internal options Isaac Okoro Karis Levert um, Jetty Osman Dean Wade Lamar Stevens none of those guys are starter quality small forwards and the external options just aren't there. Um, the guys that they could potentially trade for, I can't come up with names that would make a, a big enough impact that would be worth it. I mean, Jake Crowder comes to mind. He would probably be an upgrade on what they already have. But if you're talking about trying to make a trade, what do the Cavs have to give up at this point in time now um, giving up as many assets as they already have for somebody like Donovan Mitchell and then the other thing the Cavs are about two and a half million dollars away from the luxury tax Nate and they are not 
going in the tax this year. That is not happening. So that's enough money in free agency to go out and sign a veteran if you want to just add somebody else to the mix. But it's like, how much better is that guy that you sign in free agency going to be than the other options that you have? Um, And if you're going to make a trade, like I said, and give up more assets, assets that you don't really have at your disposal right now, like that guy has to be significantly better than what's already here or those other internal options that you're exploring. And I just don't know who fits that besides, like I said, somebody like Crowder at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I think of all the options you mentioned, I probably like Dean Wade the best because I think he's probably the second best shooter of that group. And I, I, mean, I think he's, I'm sorry. Probably. I would yeah. say that's probably right. Uh, and I actually was impressed by what he could do moving his feet defensively. You know, you kind of think of him as like, oh, white stretch four guy. He probably, you know, he's, he's going to be Steve Novak out there. But no, he actually can move his feet. He's got pretty decent size and strength. So, you know, I think he's someone that I don't think they're going to extend him because they might want to use cap space next year to try to fill that hole at the three. But I think he is their best two way option, even if, you know, we don't want to go crazy about what he can do necessarily as being a big stopper. My thought would be just change that up from night to night of who who's going to start there you know if the yeah. other team doesn't have a great perimeter threat okay maybe you go with Karis LeVert if the other team has you know a smaller guy who's pretty good that you need to get over a screen in conventional pick and roll defense maybe that's Okoro who you know you and I talked about last year of how he's he kind of turned out to be more of a two defensively than a three right at least that's how the organization sees him and then you know if you have bigger guys then maybe it is going to be weighed in that position but I, I mean it seems like there's going to be uh, plenty of competition those guys have various strengths and weaknesses so I, I would kind of make that fluid based on the matchup night to night. I know a lot of coaches don't like to do that in the regular season, but it's not like any of these guys has like so much equity that like pissing them off is going to be some major problem. <laughs> and I think it's it's also a situation where you're not convinced that who you go with on opening night, whether it's Isaac Okoro, Karis LeVert, Dean Wade, Lamar Stevens, Jetty Osman, is good enough that he's going to hold that down and you're going to have a level of comfort with that guy starting on a nightly basis. You know what I mean? I think it is yeah. going to be a fluid situation. I think just because it could be Isaac on opening night doesn't mean that that's what J.B. Bickerstaff feels like is going to be best in November or December or January as the season goes on. So I do think that position specifically is going to be fluid throughout the course of the year because there's just not one guy that you say, okay, he's going to hold it down. He's the best fit for this, 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 and this reason. And J.B. Bickerstaff, to your point, Nate, he likes Dean Wade. He jokingly throughout the course of the last season called Dean Wade his lucky charm. That every time, you know, anybody went down, whether it was Evan Mobley going out for an extended period of time or Lowry Markinen going down for an extended period of time, whether it was the three or the four spot, like J.B. Bickerstaff often liked putting Dean Wade in that starting lineup to replace that particular player um, because he's not going to hurt you. Like he's going to play the right way. He's going to do the little things that really, really help you. He makes winning plays. He can hold his own on the defensive end. He spaces the floor. He knocks down shots. He's a willing shooter. And that's one of the things about Karras and Isaac that could be problematic for the Cavs as well. Like sometimes the offense created really, really good shots for either Karras or Isaac. And those guys just weren't willing to take them. Sometimes you need to take those shots from the perimeter um, because that's what the offense is designed to do or because that's what the defense defense is willing to give you and that may be the best shot that you get throughout the course of a possession so a willingness to shoot was something that Markinen brought to that starting lineup and Dean Wade would bring that as well because he'll he'll 
he'll fire the ball up in a way that Isaac and Karras won't from the perimeter. Yeah, five point. So will Jetty, by attempts. the way. Yeah, Jetty yeah, yeah. will fire too. <laughs> yeah, Osmond was uh, eight point eight three point attempts per thirty six minutes. Wade was. Yeah. 5.2 you know 5.2 is about average for a power forward you know jetty that at 8.8 that's like above the positional average for a, a shooting guard and you know that's what jetty should do he's if he could make those shots like what else is he out there for uh, other than that um yeah and you know i mean sure lamar stevens who had quietly played over a thousand minutes last year but you know only 28 percent from three on very limited volume a, a year ago but if he can learn how to shoot i think he could figure he's like kind of a rugged driver and cutter and you know will sneak in for some offense of rebounds so he's he's got a chance maybe if he can learn how to shoot i think he defends reasonably well um let's talk about the rest of the rotation though uh first off i mean we probably need to establish when is ricky rubio expected back do you think yeah, so everything that i've been told so he he came to cleveland recently he's back in town um he spent a lot of his recovery overseas in barcelona but in recent weeks he came back to cleveland i am told that the Cavs have been um, pleasantly surprised by his recovery at this point in time and if they have to label it right now and they don't like doing that but my source would say that he is ahead of schedule slightly but they're going to be cautious they understand that that ricky is really really important to them but he's also a little bit older this is his second torn acl and it's very difficult to come off a torn acl so they keep leaning on the general timeline for somebody coming back from this particular injury it's about 12 months. The yeah. injury happened in late December. So I'd say January at the earliest. February seems more realistic and reasonable to me. And the way that the Cavs have viewed Ricky since this signing, number one, they gave him a multi-year deal. So they know next year is when he's going to be better and more effective. Their understanding of that. Yeah. The other thing is the minute that they signed him, I had people say, we're looking at this as if he's just going to be somebody that we pick up at the trade deadline that can give us a boost in the second um, half of the season as we're trying to push towards a playoff spot. So the Cavs historically, Nate, have been um, really, really cautious when it comes to anybody of importance coming back from an injury. So even though Ricky is doing well, even though it's better than they thought at this point, they are not going to rush him. And I think it's more likely February for him to come back. Yeah, and then it'll obviously take him some time to work back in. Hopefully, he can seize right. that backup point guard role effectively by the playoffs. Um, yeah, and, and that's so the in other the meantime, thing yeah. too, Nate. Like, yeah. being being healthy enough to play and being effective coming back from an injury; those are two completely different things. So, the odds of Ricky Rubio being as impactful on the court as he was for the Cavs in the first half of last season, when they were twenty and fourteen with him in the lineup, um, the odds of that happening are are not really that good coming off this kind of injury. His effectiveness is something that that I think maybe once they get to the playoffs, that's when you're going to see more effectiveness from him on the court. But there are different things that he can still bring to the organization um, when it comes to being an extension of the coach, his leadership, his positive attitude, the influence that he has on Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, um, what he means in his relationship with Kevin Love. Like all those things, just having him around will be a benefit to the Cavs even if on the court he's not going to be the same guy that he was last year coming off this injury. Yeah, and it's crazy. I just was thinking about it. I think it was almost 10 years to the day that he tore that left ACL 
Oh, no kidding. Uh, the first time in 2012, and, and now doing it again in uh, the beginning of 2022. But we'll, we'll see whether maybe that experience can help him uh, get back again uh, more quickly or just, you know, understanding the rehab and how it's going to feel. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think counting on him in those first couple of months it might yes. not be fair to him. And, but they did sign Hal Netu, who I think is a reasonable third point guard who can also step in and be in the rotation. You know, you're never, you're never going to get like a premium option there because they all also signed Rubio uh and it was for the minimum but I think for a minimum signing that was pretty good uh and then back up front court how do you see that shaking out Kevin Love is going to be integral to what the Cavs do again I think they're going to minimize his minutes the way that they did last year I think the role that they put him in was not just best for them I think it was best for Kevin at this stage of his career he's not a 30 minute a night guy 30 35 minutes he he was an exactly 25 minute per game player last year I mean, there are times even when he was playing well, it's like, nope, he hit 25 minutes. We're taking him out with three minutes left in the in the fourth quarter. Like, it seemed like there was a very clear organizational mandate. Like, no, 25 minutes, that's it. Yep. So he's going to be in that same kind of role coming up this year. I think Robin Lopez throughout the course of the regular season is going to get, I don't know, 12 to 15 minutes, depending on the matchup. He's the kind of guy that you want for matchups against Vucevic in Chicago and Embiid in Philadelphia and some of the burlier centers so that you don't have to use Evan Mobley as the backup center at this I, stage. Of I do career. have to tell Cavs fans something quickly about Robin Lopez. Yeah. You look at him, you would never think this. He is oddly a terrible post event one-on-one. Like, I don't know what it is about him, why he can't do it. I mean, going back to getting roasted by Dwight Howard in 2014 uh-huh. in the playoffs, and whenever he's matched up against Embiid, he's gotten completely killed. Like, it's, I, I mean, yeah. he is a big body. I like his rim protection. He's still got that crazy hook shot. I don't know. You know, he was yeah. just on ice last year in Orlando. I think it was a good signing, but also, like, he's going to just pick up a billion fouls trying yeah. to guard, you know, Joel Embiid at the start of the second, something like that. But if they, I- they needed a body. He's a good signing, but just for that specific thing, like, that's just a yeah. little Easter egg Cavs fans like I hope you're ready for that (laughs) if I remember right he played a couple of games against the Cavs when he was with the Magic last year and he was in foul trouble immediately playing against Jared Allen too so I understand what you're saying but I think the bigger point is for all of those minutes that you would be exposing Evan Mobley to like in that kind of physical environment you don't have to And, and I think that there's some value to that especially as we get closer to the end of the season maybe Evan's going to be a little bit fresher maybe Evan's not going to be as beat up physically because his body while he has gained strength and muscle from what I'm told and that was a big point of emphasis for him coming into this offseason was his diet hitting the weight room he's still really really young and he still isn't a full-time center not in today's NBA so Lopez is going to get those opportunities no I I think that's that's fair and you know he's he's just I mean you need a fourth big as well I mean they don't really have anyone else who's rotation quality you know again maybe they could throw Dean Wade in there some at at backup for uh, as Mm -hmm. well um anybody else just uh, on this roster like deep bench guys you think is worth talking about you got some takes on I think Lamar Stevens is somebody that the Cavs like because he does things the right way. And if he can become a more reliable offensive player and he can knock down outside shots at a different rate, I think he's somebody who could work his way into the rotation. You mentioned the number of minutes that he played last year being a big surprise. Like if the Cavs don't get from Isaac Okoro what they're hoping to get out of him, the third year leap, the um, improvement this offseason when it's actual like a real offseason for him as opposed to the COVID restrictions and all the other stuff that he dealt with early on in his career. 
career. Lamar Stevens can bring some of the stuff that Isaac can't um, if he can become a better offensive player. Uh, that's that's a big if when it comes to Lamar Stevens. But but I think he's somebody who could have a bigger role than people think coming into this season. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's talk about uh, some of the big strengths and weaknesses for this team. Obviously, strength uh, is rim protection, um, uh, for sure, uh, with those those two bigs. Um, what else stands out to you as something that like they're really going to be relying on to win game night tonight? I think it starts with the defense. You hit on it, Nate. There's no doubt about it. That's that's who the Cavs were last year. Becoming a top five defense in terms of rating was something that played a large role in them winning 44 games and getting to the play-in tournament. But offensively, I think they can be better because of what they're adding with somebody like Donovan Mitchell. And without so much responsibility falling on Darius and and Donovan being somebody who can alleviate some of that pressure, I think the Cavs can take another step offensively. And I would not be surprised like, if things go the right way. I would not be surprised if this is a team that's capable of being top 10 in offensive rating and top 10 in defensive rating as well. Yeah, it's really going to be interesting. I, I think, a, you know, a huge strength for these guys with Mitchell and Garland is off the dribble three-point shooting. And I think yeah. if you're a team that has to play conventional pick and roll defense, which is what most teams are going to do those guys can come off a screen and bomb a three and you need to deal with that you need to be ready for that and you might say well hey uh you know they don't have a ton of shooting you know if Mobley is in the corner maybe you're gonna Mm -hmm. you're gonna leave him but you're still probably going to be in a situation where either the big has to get up a little bit out of his comfort zone all right you want to put two on the ball we got a four on three and now it doesn't really matter as much that we don't have as much shooting because we got two seven footers who can finish around the rim out of those advantage situations and so just those two guys if on a night-to-night basis in the regular season like you have to deal with them you need a scheme that is not just your normal we'll just hang back and drop coverage (laughs) that's not going to work against those two guys most likely i think the other thing to your point the Cavs with their pick and roll game and jared allen as the roller and um, the lob threat and, and Evan Mobley in the same kind of role and, and Darius's shot creation, playmaking and Donovan Mitchell, his ability in the pick and roll that can be really, really dangerous for the Cavs on the offensive end. I mean, coming out of Vanderbilt, Darius Garland was one of the most efficient pick and roll players in college basketball history. And it was a really, really small sample size because he only played four full games, but he has shown with Jared Allen, he is very lethal in the pick and roll game. And it really puts the opponent in a bind. And Donovan Mitchell was a dangerous pick and roll ball handler as well. I think he was right around the 
top 10 in terms of points per possession on that particular set. Um, it was Rudy Gobert as the screen setter, not Jared Allen. But Jared Allen has some of that same stuff to his game. Um, I've had some people around the NBA, Nate, compare it to what Trey Young and Clint Capella have been able to do for the Atlanta Hawks. Like that style of offense for the Cavs can be really, really effective. And it can be Darius doing it. It can be Donovan doing it. And I think Karis LeVert can do some of that as well with Jared Allen as the screen setter. So to have like three different guys that can initiate your offense and be that effective in that kind of set, the pet set in today's NBA, really. Um, I, I think that gives the Cavs a level to get offensively that they couldn't have gotten to last year. And Ricky Rubio can do the same thing, but it's hard to count on him because of all the things that we've already mentioned. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting if opponents try to switch some of these actions. Yep. You, know, you brought up Rudy Gobert again. The difference between him and Jared Allen to me is Jared Allen has that great extension on his both left and right-handed hooks, like excellent touch around the rim. You know, Mobley had limited post-up opportunities. You know, I'm interested to see whether, you know, if there's a switch, he can beat that. But then also you have Garland and Mitchell who are experienced at attacking off the drill. They can create space for their jump shot against a mismatch late in the clock as well. So I, I do think that teams are going to struggle scheme-wise against those four. Now, maybe if Jared Allen is running the pick and roll and Mobley can't shoot, all right, you you, you might run into some issues there, but you're also going to have Mobley playing backup center with Kevin mm-hmm. Love next to him or Allen, and then you're going to really get to some some pretty good shooting groups. Uh, any other strengths you, you wanted to focus on here? No, I mean, like I said, I think defense is the foundation of this team. Everything that they want to be about is on the defensive end. Be the most competitive team, be the most selfless team, um, and, and be a team that can be right around the top five top 10 defensively and if they are then I think good things can happen once again for this team yeah the weaknesses I'm I don't know about their defense I think certainly Mm. they they have so much room protection like they could just be awesome you know I I mean that's very possible the numbers with Mobley and Allen on the year were very good really no matter who was around them but you know they did Markinen had a a lot of size like he wasn't a great defender but he at least you know provided some some more bulk in there or if Mobley was on the perimeter you know we haven't talked about that Superman's zone that they like to run as well i think we're gonna see <laughs> yep. a fair amount of that now it's kind of it's not the exact same scheme but like the heat used to run they would put bam out of bio uh up top and then kind of hide the two small guards on the baseline and you know maybe yeah. we'll see something along those lines that that could be something they get some mileage out of this year although you know again in the playoffs it doesn't seem like that can be that sustainable but the defensive depth to me is a little bit of a concern you know love is really a liability at this point mm. uh you know if he's if he has to play on the perimeter he's far too slow for that he can't really protect the rim helps the defensive rebounding quite a bit obviously he's still elite there but yeah you know so i worry a bit about that obviously you've got the two small guards those they're always going to be on the floor lavert not really a, a great option osmond not really a great option um and you know if it's a coro then uh, you run into maybe some shooting problems with him same thing with stevens so I do wonder about the ability to be totally, you know, elite, really like top five on either end because of the lack of two-way guys. You're always going to have liabilities on one end of the floor or the other out there in a given lineup. And I think particularly, it's a fair point. particularly when you don't have both Allen and Mobley on the floor, I think the defense can still be very good with both those guys. Mm-hmm. I think if you, when they go to the bench groups and there's only one of them, then I mm-hmm. kind of start to worry about what they'll be defensively, but they got to good defensive coach maybe i'll just be proven wrong i think it's a fair point and i think that's what it's going to have to come down to nate it's going to have to be a team defensive thing 
it's going to have to be schematics from J.B. Bickerstaff. Um, like you said, the the thing that they tried last year was Evan Mobley at the top of that zone, that length, that athleticism, that versatility. They got it from Minnesota with Kevin Garnett doing that same kind of stuff. Um, so I think they're going to have to do creative things to mask some of the limitations that they have with their individual defenders. Like if we go up and down the list, the entire roster for the Cavs, there aren't a ton of individual plus defenders, but having the protection and the anchors back there, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, the belief is to have two all defensive type players, both guys capable of being defensive player of the year types that can do a lot to lift your overall defense. And I think Isaac Okoro is a better defender um, than sometimes he's given credit for. The little things that he can do on the defensive end of the floor, I think are impactful. I think they're helpful too. So I think that's what it's going to have to come down to because you're right. The individual defenders that they have on this team, there aren't a ton of great ones. Um, But if they put the right scheme in place with those two guys behind them, Mobley and Allen, I think it's doable for sure. So a year ago, you predicted 26 wins for this team. I predicted 26 wins for this team. Nailed it. uh, yeah yeah exactly i mean that was 18 fewer than they won and frankly had they not been completely destroyed by injuries oh. they probably would have been high so yeah, uh, yeah yeah i mean this is the most surprising team i mean there are a lot of teams that were very surprising last year and that's why i actually had my first ever under 500 year on over-unders uh-huh. last year i mean i got i think i got like 12 right or something. i even i lost to danny that was really uh that was really humbling uh but uh, so, you know, th- this is one of the most surprising teams that we've yeah, seen. Yeah. And, and you do wonder, yeah, you know, Garland took a big step forward last year. Like yeah. there is a little bit of like plexiglass principle there maybe, but he's also young enough that you think this is just the level that he's at now. Uh, so, you know, I expect him to still be pretty good. And, you know, Mobley and Allen, you know, Mobley was better than anyone thought he would be. No one thought he would be this incredible defender uh, right away, at least. Maybe that was going to take some time. And Jared Allen, you know, emerging into an all-star. That was mm. not something that I think any of us saw coming. He was more kind of quality starting center. So, you know, a lot of these guys took big steps forward, but they're also young. And so you I, you assume that they're probably going to at least consolidate those gains and not improve further. And then, you know, Mitchell coming over as well should be massive for their offense, which really struggled at times. Yeah, I'm trying to think of where I, I'm going to rank them <laughs> on, on offense and defense. I'm not sure I'm going to get them to a top five. I'm thinking it's going to be more in the five to 10 range. And okay. I could be wrong there, but it just doesn't, it feels like they have a few too many holes. Hmm. I, I guess, do you think their defense would be like, do they have better defense? defense personnel last year or this year i think i think last year nate because rubio was a pretty pesky yeah yeah he was a pesky defender he gave them some size out there on the perimeter and some length and some active hands out there on the perimeter so that's part of it and the other thing is marking in at the three whether anybody thought it was going to last whether anybody thought it was the long-term solution for for them fixing that problem spot with him on the court next to jared allen and evan mobley they were an elite defense statistically with those three guys on the court together the Cavs had a defensive rating of 102 it just made them different it made them unique it made it difficult for opposing teams because they're like we don't see this kind of stuff 
very often. And I think it caught a lot of teams off guard, especially early on in the season. So because of Rubio and because of Markinen and losing both of those guys for a majority of this season, Rubio probably about the final two months, Markinen now in Utah. I think from a personnel standpoint, they're a little bit worse defensively this year. Yeah, to your point on Rubio, they were 5.3 points better per 100 possessions defensively, 103 defensive rating with him on the floor. And yeah, just not quite having that same size at the yeah. three. Um, it, and you know, I, I think they're more likely than not to go on offensive focus at the three. I guess, you know, they'll probably give Okoro every chance to earn it again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, but I think also generally he's, I don't see him playing more than maybe like 20 minutes a game maybe i'm wrong on that like i could see him getting the keith bogans like start but never come back in and <laughs> some in some of these games well but if he starts to hit shots then that can change so yeah i think they're gonna be a little bit worse defensively clearly you know adding a player of the caliber of mitchell and hopefully with good health they're gonna be much better also i think kevin love is gonna be hard pressed to repeat the season that he right. had a year ago i mean he was really really good you know i think he finished second in six man and mm-hmm. you know just at his age and also health you know i think he played in the 70 game something like that yeah 74 games last year at age 33 like that just hasn't been the history for him he shot he's a very good shooter but 39 percent is a little bit above where he's been historically so and think I, about I this think, nate yeah. of the games that he missed last year zero were for injury yeah. zero the only games he missed were because of covid wow yeah that's pretty remarkable and clearly they found a way to keep him healthy last year with this right. 25 minute per game limit but they are really really counting on him like they are to have robin lopez who's not very versatile as your only other true backup big you know maybe that becomes dean wade or they go small with one of these other guys but those guys like they're really relying on him to shoot the basketball like they don't have very good spot up shooting uh and their secondary players other than him Mm -hmm. so i i think though you know this feels like an offense till further notice i'm gonna say you know kind of in the like you know eight to 13 range something like that so Mm -hmm. i do think that it could be top 10 in both but i think lower end of top 10 in both would be my projection um i have no idea what they're over under is I'll, I'll go first though i'm gonna say i'm gonna pick these guys for 48 this mm. year which i i'm just i i'm just not quite sure how it's all going to work out and also the eastern conference is is very difficult yep. the whole league is pretty difficult like they're i don't see they're gonna be easy wins at least early on in the season and you know i do think that they can exceed that uh pretty easily um and there's a little bit more upside there than downside to me but i just i, I i'm just not sure how it's all gonna work out i i i like this team long term but i'm i'm not mm. quite ready to say that they're in the, in that top or in the east type of level yet although i certainly acknowledge that possibility yeah i don't think they're with milwaukee and boston either i think both those teams in the east are on a different tier and they belong on a different tier because of what they've accomplished and what they have now boston has some things that they obviously need to work through with the reports of Ime Yudoka. Um, but from a talent standpoint and from a chemistry standpoint um, and from a roster makeup standpoint, I think Milwaukee and Boston are on a different tier in the East. But but I think the Cavs can be you know close to Philadelphia, Miami I've got some questions with especially at the power forward spot. Uh, Brooklyn, who knows what's going to happen with them. So the Cavs are borderline second here in the East to me, Nate. And I think I've been kicking this around. I think they're going to be between 
47 and 51 wins since yeah. I've got to give a number. I'd say 50, I think, is doable for this group. I'm going to go with 50 for them this year. Um, the two things that give me pause on that, one you mentioned, the East is really, really difficult. Really difficult. And it's not just top-heavy. The other teams that are going to be fighting for the final couple of locked-in playoff spots in the Eastern Conference or the play-in tournament spots, those are tough teams too. Like, find the top five in the Eastern Conference, and then you feel like, okay, I either have to leave out Cleveland or I leave out Toronto or I leave out Atlanta with some of the improvements they made this offseason. So the East is going to be really, really difficult. That's one thing that gives me pause, Nate. The other thing that gives me a little bit of pause is Donovan Mitchell brings a different kind of element offensively, a different kind of shooting element offensively as well. Like he's a guy who makes around 200 threes a game. So that's going to be helpful. But like the Cavs last year were either middle of the pack in every three point category or bottom third in every three point category. And I don't know how much that improved this offseason. It was a point of emphasis this offseason. It's why they drafted Abaji, arguably the best pure shooter that they could have drafted in the lottery. But now he's in Utah. So how much is the um, acquisition of Donovan Mitchell going to raise what the Cavs can do from a three-point standpoint um, when that costs you Markinen and Abaji and Colin Sexton and some of the other guys that, that could have helped you from a three-point um, perspective? Those are the two things that, that I really wonder about with the Cavs. But I still think, um, based on having four all-star caliber players in their starting five, like that can get you a lot of wins, especially on like a random November night, December night, January night, something along those lines. So I'll give them 50. Yeah, th- that seems totally reasonable to me. And I will say this too. I said this about Phoenix in before the 2021 season when they added Chris Paul. I could see a scenario where the Cleveland Cavaliers get the number one. I don't think there's a scenario in which they're the best playoff teams here, but I right. they're, they're young. They're going to push yep. in the regular season in a way that Boston, particularly with the Rob Williams news, and the Gallo news and what you said you mentioned Udoka uh and Milwaukee certainly is not going to be a big push in the regular season team but Miami will have their their injury issues Philly I think is might be uh my pick at this point to be have the best record in the east in the regular season but I definitely think uh the Cavs could possibly be the number one seed in the east not that they're going to get 60 wins but just you know if they get to 55 uh, that that could be enough uh, potentially um you know and yeah i'm just i'm i'm worried about the depth uh, uh both in terms of two-way players being very very top heavy and they also mm-hmm. don't they don't have you know a top 15 player in the nba right now and maybe one of these guys becomes that or maybe having all four of those guys is big you know jared allen did make an all-star team i don't really think of him as like true all-star caliber player you know if you're really ranking guys is he in the top 25 nba like that's that's not true no. so um yeah so top I, 50 I think, though yeah yeah no certainly i i think that's that's um yeah all right man well where can we keep up with, with everything we're doing that's the uh the whining gold podcast correct yep whining gold talk podcast that is one place for sure um you can also check out the website cleveland.com slash calves all of my stuff is filtered there um so you can check that out especially with training camp right around the corner i mean should be a an exciting season for the Cavs, no matter how it actually finishes up. The excitement is is something that you can feel around the city. There's a level of hope now, Nate, that did not exist um, at the same level about a month and a half ago. No, it, 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 I am really excited to, to see this team as well. And uh, we thank you for making time in your busy celebrity schedule for our podcast. Uh, I know you are. Don't 
downplay your own podcast, Nate. Come on now. This is a big <laughs> deal for me to come on this one. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully this year uh, we'll be able to reprise the buffet uh, in Vegas. I was not able to do it last year because I had a newborn. Yes. But hopefully the situation will be a, a little bit more stable. Uh, I, I cut short my trip. And then I got COVID from that trip anyway. So it was <laughs> oh, yeah. ended up being oh, yeah. double whammy. A, a, a disaster. But, you know, it's uh, it, at least as far as child care was concerned. But ho- hopefully we'll be in a better place next year uh and looking forward to catching up with you again we appreciate it yep you got it man anytime at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet 365 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.